Sam. What do you mean you won? You did not. There are no secrets between father and son. Come on, Dad. You except you one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, and the terrifying comes a new classic, The Fury. Read my mind. Look, I don't know anything about reading minds, all right? The Fury, an experience in terror and suspense. They took my son away from me. They needed him, so they just took him. What the hell have you done to that boy? Oh, he's being treated like a prince. He is. He's royalty. Unique. Chinese don't have one. Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sanza. Unless it's this girl. Who's Robin Sanza? He's a boy your age. With powers like yours. Powers that build. And build. Until they become the Fury. I want Gillian Belliver at the PSI facility tomorrow. It's a frightening power these people have. They can make anybody disappear anytime. She's a fake. I'm sending her home. I don't have time to waste on people. Don't do that to me, Doctor. Don't ever try lying to me. Gillian? Where is Robin now, Gillian? What's the matter, Robin? You know what's the matter. Stop! Gillian! That girl's taking my place after you poisoned me! Oh. Ah. The Fury is the power that holds the key to all power. Peter, I was lying before. Robin's not okay. He needs us now. of the shocking. Robin? The suspenseful. Please answer me. And the terrifying. Robin! Comes a new classic. 20th Century Fox presents a Frank Yablon's presentation. She recognize your old man? The Fury. Ah! The Fury. A Brian De Palma film. An experience in terror and suspense. Welcome to another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. I'm Ben Reiser. Across the screen from me is the one and only Scott Lucas. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. I keep telling myself I'm all right, although this day has not gone any way that I planned it. Just go with it. Just ride the snake. Wound up at the orthodontist for over two hours with my son who was getting his braces off after a long, long time of having braces. And I thought they told us it would be 20 minutes, turned out to be two hours. So most of my fury watching and note taking time was eaten up. I actually sat and watched, uh, watched it on my iPhone in the orthodontist waiting room. So there you go. So much for my big screen experience. So much for my fucking 75 inch TV that I try to live by. Um, Anyhow, uh, with us today, as you may know, if you've already read the show title or notes, we've got two very special guests. Film historians, we call them. 
co-hosts of the Windy City Double Feature Picture Show podcast, Mr. Adam Karsten and Mr. Mike Vanderbilt. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having show. us. On. Oh, go ahead, Diego. Yeah. I just said thank you for having Please, us on. Been looking, been looking forward to doing it, to doing this one. Yeah, yeah no. I'm looking forward to having you. We got. Well, I'll, t- I'll, I'll go into the whole backstory of why you guys are even here, and it's it's a rich one. But I just want to say, their show uh, looks back at the history, the rich history, as I stole from your show notes, <laughs> of the double feature from a very Chicago point of view. Chicago, exploring not only the history of the films, but the stories of the theaters or theaters, as we say in the Chicago area, that screened them. And Mike. You are, in a way, responsible for the fact that 70 movies we saw in the 70s is still happening. Uh, After after my original co-host, Mr. Mike McPadden, passed away unexpectedly, I didn't think I'd keep this thing going. But I got some encouragement from people to, go ahead, keep doing it. And at some point I had this, I would like to say, brilliant idea of asking Scott Lucas if he'd like to be the co-host with one small catch. I don't didn't know Scott Lucas and he sure as fuck didn't know me and I didn't really well, I thought know the catch either. was that it wasn't oh. a brilliant idea <laughs> well, that was, that was a catch. one catch at a time please okay. uh, but I didn't even really know you Mike Vanderbilt but we were Facebook friends yeah uh, for better or worse I uh, add and, and, just and about have... anybody on, on my Facebook uh, it, look it, well so if, if I have like 25 mutual friends like we probably right. at least yeah. should know each other if we don't already. Right. And 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 you must have been I don't remember who friended who but it must have been part of the whole Crackpot Cinema 70 movies. Yes. Mike McPadden. It was a Mike McPadden connection. So because if there's if there's anybody that knew everybody it was Mike McPadden. You know it should be said though. This is kind of like almost sister podcast in the way that um Mike and I didn't really know each other, and Mc, uh, I told McPadden about my idea for this podcast, and I was like, I'm thinking this Vanderbilt guy might be good, so he was a matchmaker for us. <laughs> so it's kind of like a nice, you know, like that synergy there. That is very there. nice. That yeah. is really nice. Yeah, McPadden just wanted me to stop uh, bothering him in the middle of the day, uh, messaging him <laughs> on. He'd always tell me I need to write when I would be like, have you seen this movie? What do you think of that? <laughs> I'd be yeah. fucking him all day, too. Well, so I didn't really know how to get uh, uh, get in touch with Scott Lucas, and so I um, I looked at my Facebook friend list to see people who lived in Chicago, and I was like, oh, Mike Vanderbilt, and Mike also works at a bar. He lives in Chicago, he works at a bar. What are the chances he knows Scott Lucas? And so hey. Like, I, I, <laughs> That's not the most fair. flattering Venn diagram, right? By no. the way, to- that turned out to be a brilliant idea. Of mine, thank you. One of the one of me and Scott's uh, most memorable conversations happened at a bar uh, at Liars Club. We were hanging out after uh, Tommy Stinson show. He was DJ, and that's where we got oh, to start wow. talking about because we played together. Our bands had played together in the past, but that was the first time he ever I, I ever really got to talk about movies. Boy, there's that Tommy Stinson through line. The, Tommy, Tommy Stinson. Tommy Stinson's yep. got to be like maybe the last guest ever on Lifers because we, we sort of started off talking about Tommy Stinson. Yeah, we got to get him on there once in a while. One of these, one of these days. Uh, so anyway, so that's how it happened. He hooked me up with Scott. Scott, for some reason, said, "Yeah, let's do this thing." And now Scott and I are doing like well, a million different fucking podcasts. Well, you're you're bearing you're bearing the lead here, Ben. Oh, I'm sorry. In the uh, email, didn't he say, "Yeah, but he can be a bit of a prickly pear." 
<laughs> yes, he warned, he warned me about you. It's not the first time I've been called a prickly pear. <laughs> That's just because they don't when people don't know you. I'm people say the same shit about me, so it's okay. It's all right. Uh, you know, I have, I'm not holding it against you. I haven't internalized it. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Right. I haven't been holding on to it to bring it up at this moment or anything like that. And I feel like well, Adam yeah, and I have the it. exact same relationship that Mike Vanderbilt and I have, except that Adam didn't introduce me to Scott, and he doesn't work in a bar, as far as I know. So. No, no, I. Uh, yeah, we. I think we're just the McBeardo kind of yeah. vortex of meeting each other, right? Again. Yeah, yeah. He, the guy knew everybody, and he was always cool about. He always wanted everybody to, you know, know each other, uh, especially yeah. if he thought that they would work well together on something like this. That was a uh, one of his many great qualities, Mike McFadden. Nice. So true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. None of that, so anyhow, as they call it, gatekeeping these days. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, <laughs> I wanted to get you guys on the podcast, and then it, I also have been negligent we're like 36 37 episodes in and somehow haven't talked about a brian de palma movie yet which is weird for me crazy yeah and then i thought well out of all of de palma's 70 movies 70s movies it seemed to me like the one to talk about is the fury it's like the least obvious maybe but totally obvious in that the fact that it's a chicago movie and so the perfect time to have my three chicago pals on the on the podcast talking about it. Boy, is it ever a Chicago movie. Oh, man. I mean, it's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and it's it's actually was uh, pretty clever booking because I I don't always think of this as a Chicago movie, even though it clearly is. And it was one of I the don't first either. ones right. that really shot after Daly. even when I thought of it Daily. as a Chicago movie, I was like, is it a Chicago movie? Is it yeah. all in Chicago? And then I was like, when I watched it, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's all in fucking Chicago. Yeah. yeah even the climax, which could have been shot anywhere, is shot in Lake Forest. Yeah. Mm. Right. I mean, yeah. even Israel is really part of Chicago, if you think about it in a certain way. <laughs> I don't know what way that is, but I mean, whatever. It was actually um, shot at Oak Street Beach. That was uh-huh, Oak Street Beach right. where they shot <laughs> Yeah. I'm sorry, Adam. I cut you off. What were you saying? Oh, I no, I wasn't saying anything. I just agreeing with you guys. But it's okay. it's just like a stunningly Chicago movie that you don't maybe realize, uh, you know, unless you're really looking for it. And we can go into that maybe... Oh, we you know, more in the episode, but I definitely have yeah. some notes on some of the Great. locations and stuff. I'm very happy that you do, because I don't, and I don't know. I don't, I'm excited to know that maybe you, that between the three of you, you can nail down a bunch of what these locations were. Sure. I but mean, the, I want to talk, I want to, I want to, I want to start with, uh, here, I, I sort of organized this show for the first time in a while. <laughs> I want to start <laughs> with our sort of, I mean, it's always supposed to be this way, but I usually forget, oh yeah, that's what we were supposed to do. I listen back to an episode and I'm like... Oh, I didn't do the fucking five things that I always promised myself we're going to do. So I want to talk first about our own personal history with this film. And The Fury is is special for me because it was the first Brian De Palma movie I ever saw. I saw it in 1978 in a movie theater in Brooklyn. I think it was the Kingsway, although it might have been the Avalon. Both of those theaters were on Kings Highway. And my memory is not great. But I'm also pretty sure when I saw it, it was at a double as a double feature and I think it was with the boys from Brazil, and it might have been hmm. the boys from Brazil might have been the sort of a feature, and mm-hmm. and because that came out after the Fury, and they're both 20th Century Fox movies. I think they the both other feature movie Andrew might, Stevens as well. Ah, yeah, that's that interesting. Makes sense. Yeah, that's what's the that's a bizarre coincidence, huh? 
I mean, how many how many movies can you say feature Andrew Stevens? Not a lot. At least not a lot that made it to movie theaters. But um, uh, it also might have been magic. Uh, but I have a clear memory. I have a clear memory of seeing the Fury with my dad, and I also have a pretty clear memory of seeing the boys from Brazil with my dad. So I think that that's what it was. The problem is that boys from Brazil opened at a time in New York when there was a newspaper strike. So going back through archives this week, trying to figure out if that was the case, I couldn't get, I don't even think the New York times reviewed the movie boys from Brazil because it, they weren't publishing at the time. Um, and so I couldn't find any newspaper ads. And then I was wondering, how did we even know the fucking thing was playing? Cause if if it wasn't listed in the New York times, I didn't even know that, that anything was happening. But anyway, I think that's what happened. Anyway, I was like 12 or 13, and it made a big impact on me. It paved the way for me to be a lifelong De Palma fan. Also, I'm pretty sure introduced me to John Cassavetes and probably Amy Irving. Um, I must have seen Kirk Douglas and stuff before that. But, And I also feel like if I hadn't seen, this is one of those movies if I hadn't seen as a kid and only experienced it as an adult, like after 20 or 30 years of watching good movies, uh, you know, it wouldn't, I wouldn't feel the way I still do about it, which I, I still kind of love it. You know, I, I think Scott, were you, did you uh, text me or email me a couple weeks ago and said, is there any director that we love that's more indefensible, indefensible than De Palma? <laughs> I feel like this is maybe one of his more indefensible films from, at least from his golden period. Like I, for me, De Palma has this golden period that uh, probably starts with, I was going to say it starts with Carrie, but it probably starts with Sisters for me. Yeah. I love Sisters. And not that I don't like the movies that came before that, but I just don't think of them as like real De Palma movies. And for me, that golden period ends, I'm not sure. We'll probably argue about that throughout this episode because I know there's three Chicago guys and there's a movie called The Untouchables that uh, (laughs) might have some disagreements about. But, But in any case... Out of those gold, out of my golden De Palma period, in an objective way, I'm like, this is the one that's like, pff, I don't know, is there, is, is there anything? I mean, I, I find plenty of nice things to say about it, but I can see where objectively it's like, you shouldn't really defend this movie so much. It's kind of a mess. Yeah. But that's just me. What about you? I'm going to start with uh, uh, Mike Vanderbilt because he's at the top of my screen. What's your deal with The Fury? I think I've, I tried to watch it a couple of years ago. And just it didn't register with me or I got caught up doing something else and always meant to fill in this gap. And I mean, I for as much as I love Brian De Palma, I haven't seen a lot of the early stuff that you were talking about. Uh, I've kind of seen most of the stuff from that classic run that we were talking about. And so this was like really my first time sitting down and watch it. And I see what you're saying. Uh, but I think Roger Ebert kind of nailed it pretty well in his review that it's the kind of movie. It's so exciting when you're watching it that it doesn't matter. But if you yeah. think about it too much afterwards, then it's all going to fall apart. And I think that's true because I, I'm i really not sure what the, not the, what the thrust of the movie is, but there's a lot of stuff left unexplained. Not that I need everything, sure. uh, uh, you know, written out for me about a movie, but it's just kind of like, but all the special effects and all the set pieces make this movie worth watching, I think. Special effects are great. I mean, I, I kept... Yeah thinking about how great they were yeah scott so what about you speaking of you uh i you know you know you know i was not looking forward to watching this movie you know i mean i'd (laughs) seen it because why because you'd seen it i'd seen it i I didn't care about it uh 
And, you know, like, yes, I did send you that thing about him being indefensible. I mean, I was watching Body Double the other night, and I've seen that so many times. And I'm watching this, and I'm kind of like, is this a good movie? And so I was kind of like, I don't want to watch The Fury. And, man, I, I was wrong. I mean, the first time I watched it the other day, I was just like, wow, De Palma just seems bored. I'm bored. This is a piece of shit. And then I watched it again the next day, and I was like, no, he's not bored. He's going for it in every single shot. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was riveted. I mean, I couldn't even uh, write down notes because I was afraid I was going to miss something. There's something going on all the time in this movie, and it's mm -hmm. pretty great. Thank you, Ben. Mm -hmm. Sure. Adam Karsten? Um, so, first of all, are we the first guests that haven't that weren't able to see a movie in the 70s, I think. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is like secondhand brought down to me. Um, my mom didn't realize, but she was actually a huge De Palma fan. Like Carrie was a very weird bonding movie she showed right. me when I was like 10 or younger, honestly. And, you know, so this was one that like was on TV a lot, on AMC on cable a lot when it was still a movie channel. And yeah. so I always caught bits and pieces and huge chunks of it. And but that was edited, right? Back that was then. edited. So yeah. like, I'm not entirely sure, even though I remember the plot and the, the, like a lot of these set pieces that I've ever seen it unedited beginning to end. Um, so, you know, this was always kind of in my mind, like a lower middle De Palma. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's still about there, but that's not the worst place to be be because there's right. some really like how i see De Palma, he's got like upper echelon and then middle stuff that's flawed but still tremendous and then just some real misfires and um you know but this is still one, mostly fascinating yeah well yeah because so personally like i agree i mean you say you like brian De Palma, you're gonna have a fight with somebody and i like brian De Palma, so <laughs> i you know i've had those battles through the years but i just think of what it comes down to is who even from his generation directs with such a visual like intensity and beauty and just goes for it. Like he makes, he like, he reminds you that this is a visual medium and in a lot of ways that after silent movies ended, people kind of threw away. Like he brings back a lot of those just like insane flourishes that I respect because they're just, they weren't even around back then, let alone now. Um, and you know, like, I think, you know, you just get sucked in. Like, I didn't want to look away from the screen either because it was just like, there's like, this is goofy, but you don't think about how goofy it is. Cause you get sucked in for five, 10 minute chunks of how great it is. Cause I do think this movie adds up to a little bit of nothing and we can go into that maybe more sure. later, but yeah. it's just, it's so exciting and well-made that it overcomes a lot of its flaws. Well, and, and I think that this is one of those movies for me that really actually is the opposite of being indefensible as far as Brian De Palma. It, for me, mm -hmm. this movie makes the case for Brian De Palma because this movie is the, the script, the story, the book it was based on, which I'm sure I read as a teenager because I would do that if I saw a movie and found out there was a book that had been read. Like, oh, let me read this thing. And the screenplay, which was also, I think, written by the guy who wrote the book, John mm -hmm. Ferris. It's terrible. It's so bad. Yeah. But And you can, and watching a bunch of these what they're calling neo-noir movies on Criterion Channel this month and watching stuff like The Eyes of Laura Mars, 
You start Ugh. trying to think about if any other director had taken this script, what an incredibly boring pile of shit this movie would have been from start to finish. Imagine and, how great Eyes of Laura Morris had been right, if that's De Palma the had done it. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, like, I hate that movie. That's the other thing. Think of any of these movies that kind of sucked from the seventies that should have been yeah. good, like well, Eyes of Laura Mars with with a script by John Carpenter. You know, that's a and great a great premise. Point. Yep. Well, I don't know. I mean. I just watched Eyes of Laura Mars, and in execution, it's the dumbest fucking premise yes. of all time. Like, it makes zero fucking sense. And I really want to read Carpenter's original screenplay, which I don't know, is that out there? Has anyone done such a thing? Because he defends it. He says, my original screenplay was really good, and then they really shat all over it. I'm not sure if I believe him, but I'd love to find out. Well, that's like that thing that you were saying, Ben, when we did The Crazies, that Carpenter mm-hmm. never lends his films never lend themselves to remakes and George Romero right. does. And it's because right. of Carpenter's style. Right. And I think right there, that lends a whole lot of credence to your mm. idea there. Yeah. Yes. But I want, but I wonder at some point, I, my guess is Carpenter, who seems like more of a minimalist when it comes to these things, hmm. had a much more minimalist version of eyes of Laura Mars where it didn't matter that he wasn't, it wasn't trying to expand and do so much that you'd sit there and wonder, why the fuck is it that she's seeing through his eyes? What happened? Where's the backstory? What's where's the psychic phenomena? Where's the where's anyone in this movie saying, "Why is this fucker seeing this killer kill people?" You need someone that knows how to work for that movie and the Fury. And I think it's good you brought him up because yeah, this is like there's a certain kind of script and premise that if you don't have someone who's finely tuned to thrills or horror, or a certain kind of, you know, visual, um, you know, kind of tone that these movies can just come across, you know, silly, but even worse, boring, which right. I think the eyes of Laura Mars does. So like, it's a great comparison because uh, what's is it? Uh, Kirshner. Yeah. Um, he's oh, my God. I mean, that movie's made by people who clearly have no love or respect for, for horror movies uh, right. where I think. You know, De Palma's love of uh, you know Hitchcock and thrillers and other horror movies just gushes through in this, and that's which is usually the best spots of the movie, honestly. Right. Well, and definitely. Also, but- the other thing about this, about those two movies, is they both, and maybe Laura Mars even more than The Fury, they both seem to be trying to tap into the Italian giallo yeah. genre, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I think De Palma s- saw maybe the best parts of those movies and, you know, knew what the good parts of those movies were and ran with that. Whereas Kirshner, I don't know. I don't think he's yeah, ever seen one. De Palma still maintains that he never saw any of those movies. He, he totally uh, is a liar. I don't, I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> Who knows? Come on. Well, if you think, come well, on. you think about it though, like he's the same age and generation roughly of all those directors and they all grew up on Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was, let's take the, type of thrills and of a Hitchcock and the visuals and move it to the next mm-hmm. level. Cause you could say that with the Italians too. Now I do also think like, yeah, did he not, you know, catch four fives on, you know, gray velvet once or something, you know, like it is a little hard to believe at the same time though. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to see like this movie is a cross section. Cause I do think the telekinesis subgenre is crossing over. Cause this movie is a crossover with Carrie and then, you know, some other movies before and after, um, so it's like it's this movie's a weird blend because I wouldn't quite call it a horror movie though most contemporary reviews of it, of when it came out did I mean what do you guys think is this a horror movie The Fury 
Oh, I can't as opposed even de- to what? As opposed yeah. to a telekinesis movie, you mean? Well, but that's what I mean. Like, I think that's this movie is kind of like a weird cross section of a lot of different things, right? Like, I think there is kind of some of that giallo, stylish, Hitchcockian stuff mixed with horror, mixed with kind of like the sci-fi telekinesis. Like, it's for better and, and worse, political I thriller too. as well. In I, there I too. think it political third yeah. yeah once yeah. you start uh, debating genre you've already lost because this is like this could sure fill in uh, a couple different gaps and i want i forgot to mention one of my first places i've ever remember seeing any footage from the fury was countless right. showings of terror in the aisles on the uhf station because they would show the uh mm. the what do i want to say the ferris wheel the uh whatever that sure. ride was seen and that was all a co- yeah, that was a whole money that was the money sequence for me yeah yeah that oh, was yeah. a collection of you and, know, cl- and i remember i remember seeing siskel and ebert review the fury and that's the you know that's the sequence that they played um and actually the thing i haven't mentioned yet that the real reason i wanted to see the fury having not seen carrie not known brian de palma from a hole in the wall was reading pauline kale's rave review which i think i'll try to read us to us later on of the Fury, where she says it's better than any Hitchcock movie. You know, it's got more thrills, more set pieces than the best Hitchcock movie, and just goes on and on and on about it. This yeah. is the greatest movie of all time. And I was like, oh, that's that's what sold me on going to see this thing. And that's still one of the sort of the most influential reviews I could ever remember from my childhood. Like going like, oh fuck, this sounds like the best. She movie. loved De Palma more than maybe any critic, and probably gave him more legitimacy than he would have gotten otherwise, <laughs> or maybe deserved. <laughs> tomato tomato this one did uh the fury does remind me a little bit of family plot in the sense that hmm. it just it, it allow it just asks you to accept that there's psychic ability in the world there's no there's no explanation for it it's just right this and that we all have it too whether it's just something that we've gotten out of our mind as we've gotten older and, and also that it's still the seventies. It's it's the seventies, but we're still going to try to do car chase scenes with like process shots and rear screen. <laughs> what is going on with that car chase scene? It is so weird. Yeah. Well, I'll t- well I'll talk about that because I watched a whole featurette on this import Blu-ray that I got of the Fury this week with Richard Klein, the uh, cinematographer, and Richard Klein proudly says, "I'm the one." He said he 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 makes the following claims about his relationship with De Palma. This was the first and I think only movie he worked on with De Palma. He said, I taught Brian De Palma the importance of rehearsing with actors. Like up until then, De Palma was one of these Hitchcock guys who storyboarded every second of the film and, and never rehearsed with the actors before they went to shoot takes. Uh, he convinced De Palma that there, there was value in rehearsing, but that the other thing was that he showed De Palma was... I mean, he says like he he showed De Palma how to do process shots, like the like all that car mm-hmm. stuff. And he said, "Listen, if you're gonna have all this dialogue with Kirk Douglas and these two cops in this car, you need to do it with rear screen projection and not and and you know, of course, De Palma must have seen all these Hitchcock and other thrillers and stuff that had that used that same technique. But maybe Klein is saying he convinced him that it would still be okay to do that in 1977 or 78. I don't know." I'm not sure. What I, he's I also wonder. I felt like they wrote the if the fog that was in that car chase was written in to cover up budget and time restraints, right. where they're just like, ah, this isn't working. Throw fog on it, which is just a story old as time in in you know making movies, right? <laughs> just cover it up with fog. Yeah. All right. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna. I grabbed the Wikipedia plot synopsis of the film, uh, which is 
in the realm of Wikipedia plot synopsis, not the worst I've ever read and not the best. Uh, and but I'll but I'll stop after every paragraph and we'll just jump in and and talk about that section of the movie. But I but they don't talk about and what I need to talk about is that for me this is yet another brilliant John Williams score. I yes. love that this movie starts over black with a little mini overture, kind of so effective. And it made me think: Does anyone know how to open a movie better than John Williams? I mean, think about the opening notes of Jaws, Star Wars. Black Sunday, which we talked about uh, a couple months ago, and this one. And I mean, all those movies, 10 seconds in, you haven't even seen an image. And I'm already like, <laughs> I love this fucking movie. I'm totally hooked. Put me down for the next two hours. I'm watching this thing. And it's all John Williams. Yeah. Hmm. It's almost like the same, like with his Lost in Space theme, you know, where it's like the first few beats, like, I'm going to watch this. Like, that's like John <laughs> Williams 101. It's like, yeah. and I'm hooked. But he changes tones really effectively too. Like like it fits the scenes very well. Yeah, especially what what to me is like the standout of all the set pieces. It's the slow motion uh, escape from the mm-hmm. uh, institute, where the first half of that scene, which seems endless and the typically wonderful like Brian De Palma, like I'm just going to slow mo this thing for the next twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, where the first half of that, the music is triumphant, and he somehow Williams then is able to turn the screw and it gets dark and Hester gets killed and there's shootings and stuff. And through this one piece of music, he's taken you through all those emotions from like the triumph of getting out of the building to the tragedy of how yeah. it ends. Yeah. It's a silent film thing that Adam was talking about earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he gets rid of even any sound effects. It's all just the music and the image. Yes. Especially I, it I caught my attention. I don't think I'd ever realized this before when Kirk Douglas shoots that guy, you don't hear the gunshots, no. but, but mm-hmm. Williams has a has a and in a high pitched sort of like a violin tone or something for each one of those shots. And it's amazing. I'm like, this is so fucking cool. It's like a sleeper score. Like, you don't really hear this one talked about because it's Star Wars, Star Wars, Star, you know, all the Spielberg stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one's just it fits the movie like a glove, which is really great. And uh you know, I just, uh, I'm a big Pino Donaggio fan who, you know, right. De Palma worked with a lot in this era, but I was like almost happy this time to see something a little different, uh, you know, a little bit more polished Hollywood and less like kind of European romantic, I guess, for lack of a better term. But it was well, fun when, when John did the Pino stuff, when he sort mm-hmm. of leaned into that kind yeah. of thing. Like, should, it was yeah, pretty you're right. funny. Yeah. Well, that's what I think that this, this score of his amazingly brilliantly splits the difference between Bernard Herrmann and Pino Donaggio. It's like, mm. it's yeah. got both of those things combined in this crazy, like Reese's peanut butter cup way that you're like, Oh shit, this is great. This is like the best of both worlds. No, that's actually a good point. Yeah. I wonder if you just watched sisters and Carrie before this and it's, uh, <laughs> was, you know, what, what's yeah. Brian up to lately the last <laughs> few years and how can I suit it? Yeah. And then I wonder if Pino then listened to this and got inspiration for Dress to Kill and Blow Out. Yeah, Blow Out and everything. Oh, Pino. Oh, Pino. Uh, (laughs) The best name ever, Pino DiNaggio. All right, so here we go. In Israel, ex-CIA agent Peter Sanza and his psychic son Robin meet Ben Childress, Peter's old agency colleague. 
Now, I want to stop right here. Do they yes, ever say please. that they're CIA? Because I don't think they're CIA. I they say they're, they're an agency you've never even heard of. They, they don't What they don't spend a lot of money on advertising? Is, yeah. Well, that, that comes up later, right? With the, That's a great scene with the hotel yeah. clerk. But, but even... But, <laughs> But there's no differentiation between what uh, uh, Kirk Douglas and and, uh, John Cassavetes were involved with as opposed to what John Cassavetes is still involved with, right? They're all, it's all the same thing, isn't it? Whatever that mysterious organization is. Some kind of psychic thing. Yeah. (laughs) What about the, is there ever a more homoerotic father-son relationship than Andrew (laughs) Stevens and and Kirk Douglas? What is going on? yeah, I that thought went through my mind. Uh, wrestling on, on the beach and uh, yeah, it's Greek. Yeah, it's Greek. <laughs> okay, wait. Sans boys plans being to boys. leave his old life and return and return to the United States with his son, despite uh, Childress's protests. Subsequently, Childress stages a terrorist attack to cover up kidnapping Robin for his quote unquote protection. Peter narrowly survives, but is unable to protect Robin, maiming Childress in the attempt. And escaping while heavily injured. So I, I mean, for me, that opening beach scene is a great set piece in and of oh, itself. Yeah. Um, that rotating if, camera, as you, you know, and they try to sell Cassavetes as a good. Cassavetes does a hell of a job acting in there because he's, yeah, he's great. Know, not he's not the bastard yet, right? And he's faking everything, and you know, it's it's a right. strong setup. Well, and it's great, but it's also great that on repeat viewings you can watch that Cassavetes performance mm-hmm. and see all the shit that he's manipulating in that scene. But he, you're right, he underplays it, and it's great. And it's also kind of shockingly easy when you watch that waiter after seeing it the first time and see the squibs that are underneath his white shirt. It's like, oh yeah, okay, there's the three places where his bullets are about to get blown up. <laughs> and why, by the way, is Robin... Andrew Stevens, who, by the way, is Stella Stevens' son, which I didn't know until today. Oh, I never put uh, that together either. Why is he unable to unleash any of his powers in that scene, which they already know that he has? Is there any reason not for that not to happen, other than they don't want to reveal that aspect of the plot in the first For scene? the same reason that he lets himself fall to his death instead of levitating at the end, well, probably. That's a good, that's Did another good point. That's a plot point I feel like we should talk about when we get to it, but you're right. That one, I feel like there might loose. be some explanations point. Yeah. Right. There's, there's all sorts of fast and loose things. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of like, wait, why are his eyes suddenly turning blue? Why, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know there's, there's lots of weird, like, wait, Gillian can see the future? Is, how's that part of her thing? They say too much and too little at the same time, which is often a problem in sci-fi, horror kind of fantasy stuff, where it's like, either just over-explain it and hope it works, or just shut your mouth and people will fill in the blanks. Where this kind of tries to do best of both worlds, I think. I think DePaul no, he knew. Yeah, he was like, it's stupid, nobody cares. Yeah. You know, yeah. he just totally goes with that. I it's feel true. like I he was cared. having fun. Yeah. You know, just yeah. give him a thrill ride. Yeah. Yeah. He likes the silliness, you know. Yeah, I feel so, I feel like De Palma though gets overlooked as like he's like his movies are parodies more often than not mm-hmm. a lot of times. Yes, yeah. but they're done so well that they're taken as straight versus half being half parody. It's like he never stopped making comedies. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right, and all of his thrillers are very funny. Mm-hmm. Like even if they're not actually parodies. They, they're chock full of humor, which is oh, another yeah. thing that like, something like Eyes of Laura Mars seems to be like, oh, these people should have some fun every once in a while. No, no, no. 
This yeah, is the fashion world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, Kirk Douglas starts the movie wearing nothing but this tight little bathing suit. But don't worry, because it's not the last time we're going to see his entire 60-year-old body. Has which he looks and, fucking amazing. <laughs> but. Has he and Burt Lancaster ever been in a movie together? Oh, several. Yeah. And yeah. do they wrestle? Uh, they were half, I, half naked. There's that one. Um, there's that one in the '80s where they're both older mobsters that get out right. of prison. Uh, tough guys. Is tough guys. Tough guys. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and they were in like you know seven days in uh, May and like some older stuff. But yeah, I wonder if there is like that. They they both come from that era of like I need to show how tough I am, but I'm also <laughs> a serious actor. And yeah. Kirk Douglas tried to hang on to his youth and masculinity a little too long. I, I always feel like, uh, you know, it's just like, okay, man, we get it. You were, you were jacked 20, 30 years ago. We can <laughs> age a little bit more gracefully now. Cause he's but shirtless he's for graceful. 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. He's pretty fucking graceful. He yeah. it really either, either they got a stunt man who looks exactly like him or, or he's doing a lot of that stuff. He seems to be swinging from that hotel sign. In, in that, actuality, yeah. yeah, no, I couldn't tell. Uh, you know, he was a great. I mean, I'm making fun because sometimes no, it's just like every movie it was like that. Yeah, but at the, the same Saturn time, three is the craziest fucking. Yeah, time. he's yeah. like naked for that whole goddamn movie. <laughs> well, like I think I was telling you in uh, in messages that uh, there was actually a um, there's that book Money by Martin Amis. Mm-hmm, where they right. actually have a whole character based on him that's just like this this guy who refuses because he was going to play uh the commander in rambo for instance mm-hmm. uh in the first movie uh first blood and i guess he was trying to upstage um you know stallone during it so you know that <laughs> became like even a thing in the 80s All right so then the next paragraph of this plot description is months later in Chicago. And I already have a question mark. Months later? I don't actually know the timeline, but I think it's years later, isn't it? Seems like it. A year? Yeah. I mean, it seems more than a month. Seems like Kirk Douglas has been on the hunt for a while. and I don't know. Maybe not. But anyway, sometime I mean, if, later. If it's only months, they, they turn the kid really quickly. Yeah. That was Sometime my later thought. in Chicago, high school student Gillian Belliver discovers her psychic powers, including telekinesis and extrasensory perception, during an in-class demonstration. The uncontrolled manifestations of these powers harm people who physically touch or provoke her. She volunteers to attend the Paragon Institute, a live-in research facility studying psychic powers in adolescence. So Amy Irving, that first scene of her and her friend on the boardwalk on the beach, where where exactly is that in Chicago? That looks like Oak Street Beach, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How now, about that scene? Jesus Christ. Did you guys notice a certain swarthy looking gentleman in the background that how would could, become famous later? How, how could you Jim not? Belushi, like right? the most Chicago yeah. thing in a movie full yeah. of Chicago things. One of the Belushi boys. Oh, is that the scene that he's in? Yeah. Right. He's yeah. credited as he's or he, I think he's uncredited, but on IMDb he's listed as Beach Bum. No, I did not <laughs> notice him. I was too busy looking at stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so is that actually a beach with sand where people wear bathing suits and go in the water? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Yeah. Probably Chicago's I'm, most popular beach because it's yeah. right uh, in the downtown area. Right. Now, there's and a couple it, you can I, get further south and further north. Like there's what there's Hollywood Beach and there was Rainbow Beach on the south side, which is still I think it's still there. Uh, but yeah, Oak Street Beach is like the ultimate, like that's where all the, that's where all the yuppies downtown hang out. Yeah. No. And it still looks 
pretty much like that. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> right down to the scantily clad women. It looks exactly the same down at Oak Street Beach. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me, like how you know how much Chicago in '78 still kind of looks like Chicago now. I mean, there's a few more buildings, but it's it's there. I mean, there's buildings that were still that were there in '78 that I was like, oh, I had no idea that building was that old. Yeah, well, you know, and so I don't know if we're ever going to come back to the um, the scene where Kirk escapes uh, or not. Should we talk about that now? Because where he that, escapes from the hotel. Yeah, where they're coming oh, yeah, at him get, from the we're, hotel. We're, yeah, we'll come back to that. Okay, because really yeah, yet. all right, yeah, because that's an interesting little story in and of itself. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. But um, so what I noticed today for the first time because I, I tend to not listen to a lot of dialogue at the start of movies that seems like it's not really part of the movie. I never really paid attention to the conversation that Amy Irving and her friend are having, other than they're studying for some kind of exam and she doesn't know the name of some. Uh, politician of old and she thinks that when Raymond Dunwoody tells her his name psychically that that's the answer to the question Um, but what I finally listened to today is that that what they're really talking about more than anything is is about parents not being able to let go of their kids and let them have their independence which for this movie is is a sort of an impressively clean and subtle way of introducing like an overarching theme in this movie it's kind of impressed, like, oh, they got that in there without me yeah. even knowing it. Um, so speaking of this Raymond Dunwoody guy, that's <laughs> William Finley, um, who is a, a, a De Palma veteran. He the Phantom was, himself. Right? Phantom and Phantom of the Paradise. And he's also, my favorite of his De Palma roles is the, is he's the kind of mad scientist in Sisters. He's the, mm. he's the yeah. architect of, uh, of <laughs> the disaster. Yeah. Falls then. <laughs> um, uh, this character, Raymond Dunwoody, kind of reminds me a little bit of the of Stephen Lack's character in Scanners. And then by the end of this movie, watching again today, I was like, man, Cronenberg got so much of Scanners from this movie because it's, it's crazy. Not, it's not just that character, but all like the the whole the 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 throbbing vein stuff, which is <laughs> awesome in Scanners, yeah. comes from this movie. Nosebleeds. Nosebleeds, but then and then the the whole exploding fucking head thing. I mean, it's it's the climax of this movie. What about the stuff that he would use for the dead zone? You know, all that kind of stuff about yeah. touching people and and seeing mm-hmm. being transported to the room where all this stuff is happening. It's crazy how much stuff Cronenberg got from this. Yeah, has anyone ever heard Cronenberg talk about the Palma or this movie? No, I haven't. But it's yeah, we all clearly had the same thought. It sounds like um, my only argument would be is he was able to whittle down the best parts of these things and actually make better movies. Well, the, as much as I like the Fury, it. I love Cronenberg. Yeah. I'm just like I never realized no, how yeah. much of an influence this. No, no, yeah, no, no. There's uh, I don't think there's anything negative about it. I just think it's like it's interesting to see like a, a lower budget, easier, streamlined approach made this even better. Honestly, like with scanners, just yeah. for my taste. And this isn't an explode. The head doesn't explode in this movie. He right. didn't get the exploding head. <laughs> and I, yes, it completely surprised me. I was like, "Here comes the exploding head." It's like, nope. I don't think I ever knew before today that the special effects were Rick Baker in this movie either. I was surprised to see his hey, name. Rick Baker and like, oh, Rob Boutine working on this one. His oh, really, Rob Boutine as well? Yeah, he's oh. uncredited, but. Um, oh. It would make sense in the timeline, though, because yeah. he was his protege, and then that's how Botine got the gig on The Howling, because yep. 
Baker couldn't do it. Because he was doing American Werewolf. Yeah, they did Piranha, I think, the same year, roughly, too. Piranha. Yeah, I mean, the special effects, I kept marveling at how good they were. You know, yeah. I mean, it's they must have, like, really freaked people out at the time, because they looked amazing. I can't think of another movie at the time that looks this good with the special effects. No, and you figure this is, like, when Baker's becoming Baker, right? Like, yeah. he's, you know, he's only been, you know, he's been in less than maybe five years at this point, give yeah. or take. I mean... This is better than Octoman, but, uh, <laughs> you know. I mean, I guess there was The Exorcist. That, look, that looked amazing, too. So I guess people were ready yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. Exorcist was probably the primer. Um, yeah, I don't, I, you know, and I think, like, as an ex- if we're talking about the effects here, this is kind of a sleeper effects film from, like, that late 70s, early 80s golden period that everybody talks about. Especially Cassavetti's, you know... Uh, fate is just like yeah. jaw-droppingly <laughs> good like even if this movie was you know 100 percent dull which it isn't like obviously we all, no. all of us enjoy it even if we can admit that it's kind of dumb at times that ending alone would be enough to make it uh, worth talking about but it's funny because yeah. you don't hear a lot of people talk about that ending in terms of great special effects sequences from the 70s or from horror or from any of the any of the subgenres that the Fury can fit into, it's well, almost forgotten. More, yeah, even more interestingly about that ending is that the contemporary critics at the time, like Pauline Kael, and I also read Vincent Camby's review. They both name check uh, Zabriskie Point when talking about the ending of this movie. They're like, "Oh, this is this huh. is Zabriskie Point, but on a much more personal level," which is insane. Well, I hadn't Why? seen Zabriskie Point. I finally saw Zabriskie Point a couple of years ago. At the end of Zabriskie Point, this house blows up, like out of sort of out of yeah. nowhere. They blow up this whole fucking house. Uh, the bad which guys. Which is Kiss house, Me Deadly. Right, exactly. And it's like, that's what they were talking about all those years ago with the Fury. That's why they were comparing it, just because a house blows up. It was so weird to me, like in retrospect, that they. Yeah. Uh, it feels like one one of them must have written it. The other one read the other one's review before they wrote theirs. I don't know. It's just like a weird connection to make. Maybe they were trying to give their love of this movie some legitimacy by referencing. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Although Canby didn't love it, so. Um, no. Of course no. he didn't. Yeah. Fuck her. Uh, I mean, but, you know, that ending must have sent Pauline Kale like, right out of the theater, just, you know, right to her typewriter. Just yeah. like, oh, I got to write about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and De Palma, it's not just William Finley that he reuses in this movie. There's, like, a whole, he's got his whole, like, stock company. Like, Amy Irving had been in Carrie. Uh, Charles Durning had been in Sisters. And, of course, Dennis Franz, I think maybe this is his first De Palma movie, but then he went on to right. oh, yeah. Dress to Kill and Blow Out. And he's in Body Double, too, right? Isn't he, Scott? Does he play the director? Uh, I, a director he's the director. Oh, he's the director at the beginning. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Why don't you just go home, kid? <laughs> Is there any difference between um, Dennis Franz's Chicago cops versus his New York cops? It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> He's a Chicago cop. He, yeah. He, he is, he's the epitome of this Chicago guy. I mean, yeah, who, but then he was NYPD Dennis Farina. Blue Him and Dennis Farina would be like, why didn't we ever have a buddy cop comedy with Dennis Farina and Dennis Franz? Well, oh, didn't man. they do like a picture together? It's like Franz, Farina, and uh, what's his name from the, the, the coach from the Bears? Ditka? 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 Ditka. I think they're like, 
there's a picture of all three of them together smoking cigars, oh. being jagoffs. Oh, they did a picture together, not a movie. Yeah, when you no, said picture, it was like an ad. It's a it was like an ad campaign or something well, like that. There's a picture here that I found of Belushi, Franz, and <clears throat> Ditka. Looks like they're at some sort of black tie affair. <clears throat> Maybe that was it. Which Belushi? <laughs> Which only adds Jim. Jag off in this. Jim? Yeah. Jim Belushi sucks. Let's just get that right out of the way. There's nobody that sucks more than Jim Belushi. Fuck that guy. Wow. Come on. Talentless fucking prick. I'm trying to figure out if there's somebody who sucks more. There there isn't. There is not anybody that sucks more than Jim Belushi. I think he's an underrated character actor. I'll, oh, I'll take yeah. Come on. Hey, you, you look at the directors who have sought him out and used him. It's a pretty impressive. I actually got to Go interview on. him a few weeks ago. Oh, okay, oh. so you got some skin ago. in this game. I got you. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, which if I don't know, if I'm supposed to say that anymore. Not supposed to say that anymore. Another one, Roman Polanski. Okay, well maybe I should. Another stop. one you're not supposed to say. Well, you're running say, the gamut. Who else? Wait, 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 wait. I finally. Is liked there anybody who? As I'm going good. through my head, David he Lynch. Was good. He was good in Twin Peaks: The Return. So yeah, Lynch, Lynch knew what to do with him. Mm-hmm. He's good in Thief. Nobody gives Dan Aykroyd's brother shit. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I don't. I didn't even know Dan Aykroyd had a brother. He does have a brother. He was in. And don't get stuff. me started on Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd's brother He's is second out- on my list. <laughs> he, came, he came up in my head when I was trying to figure out who might suck worse than Belushi. And I yeah. just didn't want to say it. Dan I didn't want to get into a whole fucking Blues oh, Brothers fucking shit. Aykroyd. Oh, we will get into the Blues Brothers. There's some yeah. Blues Brothers connections. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's coming up. Okay, okay. Now, Amy Irving's friend is played by this Melody Thomas Scott, who I never even... She makes no yeah. impression on me at all. But she, turns out she was in Marnie. She was also in Piranha. Oh. She was <laughs> also in The Car. Piranha. And she was also in The Beguiled. So, fuck. She was in The Car? She, yeah. That's a pretty good resume, actually. Yeah, but. I know, right? Still makes no impression. I still couldn't pick her out of a lineup. If no. Were actresses. She's no Daryl Hannah who you spot oh. instantly. Right no. back at high school, there's Daryl Hannah. Yeah. The, Who's the, the chick the, with the glasses? Oh, I like her. I looked her up. Who is she? Um, but she didn't do much. Hillary Thompson. She's been in nothing. And I was like, she's got to be in something. I feel like she just looks like somebody who's wearing the exact same glasses. She looks Jerry. like Edie McClurg and I Carrie. Think that's it. Right. That's who I thought. Yep. For one second, I thought it was PJ Souls in a wig. Me too. For one Me second, too. yeah. Yeah. She's a pretty good 70s bully. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's great in this movie. And uh, with a lot of the... It's weird because this cast is seemingly evenly divided between people who've been in just about every movie you can count and people who never made another movie that anyone's ever seen. And they but the weird thing is it's not like the it's not like the real veterans have bigger roles than the complete unknowns. And the complete unknowns, the ones who never did anything else, like the woman who's like the head of the institute who she makes bleed at the kitchen table. Yeah. Like she's never done anything else, really, but she's like got tons of dialogue in this movie. She's like a major player, and she's perfectly good in the movie. That's yeah. the thing. Like all these people who never went and did anything are good in this movie. Like you would think that that Cheryl, whose nose bleeds with the glasses, would be in a million other movies because she's perfect in that kind of role. But no, Chicago but actors maybe, huh? Chicago actors maybe, maybe. But meanwhile, Daryl Hannah and that Laura Innes who mm. wound up uh, with a huge role on ER for yeah, two uh, de- Between her and Dennis Franz, two of the biggest stars of 90s television in this yeah. one. She was mm. the doctor who was, uh, who I think, had like limping at a cane yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 
and then turned out to be a lesbian and they adopted right. kids, maybe or something. A whole fucking thing. What a good Scott, show. you know you're the biggest ER fan of all time. I think ER is great. I used to watch Lifetime. We were, we were just talking about that. Wait, you didn't watch ER till it was on Lifetime? That's right. Okay. <laughs> we were talking Johnny about come the, lately. The guy from RoboCop who was also on ER about how he got he he what he got his arm cut off by a helicopter on yes. ER and then the helicopter crushed him a week or yes. two later. <laughs> Man. Well, I don't even, Better than the acid melting. Two? I think him. it was I think it was like a season or two later. Even weirder. Yeah. <laughs> you remember the Tarantino episode yes, that he directed? Yeah, I remember watching that when I was young, and it left quite an impression because it's very dark. <laughs> I think it's like ends with a mother, the mother dying during delivery and everything. Here's that an was, aside. I think that was the Tarantino. That one. wasn't it. Okay. No. Okay. Here's That's an a, aside. That is a dark episode. A, yeah. a friend of mine went to go see, uh, like last month, went to go see Pulp Fiction at the midnight showing at the New Beverly, and they said, "Well, we got a special guest." They opened up the door, and Tarantino walked in with Roger Avery. Yeah, I heard so about that. Yeah. My friend thinks that he's doing something with Roger Avery, right? They're going to start a podcast. Awesome. Oh, is that what that they, is? Yeah, he announced it in an interview. They're going to do a podcast. Are they going to the, get uh, microphones, videos. or are they just? Oh, so you guys know all about this? Room over like the <laughs> right, the New exactly. Beverly podcast. No, but I don't. Think Johnny, it's, come lately again. Well, but I don't know if it's been widely reported as such. But in one interview I heard, that's going to be about the video archives, and they're going to pick okay. a movie that they liked during that era of video archives, and just kind of break it down with guests, which. Sign me up for that. That sounds yeah, awesome. Yeah, he mentioned it on the Joe Rogan. They're coming interview. for. They're coming for us. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck them, man. Wait till they get the podcasting thing. Looks pretty good. Let us get in there. Yeah. He's gonna do it on uh, wax cylinder though to keep it authentic. Yeah. Well, I was hoping they, they they were writing a movie together. That that was that would be great. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's like if what's his name Marshall Berkman started writing with Woody Allen again. Shh. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the scene where Amy Irving uh, drives the train set with her brain waves is the first and maybe most obvious use of the diopter lens thing in this movie. Yeah. But it's also the sloppiest. Uh, and it wasn't. It was. It was only because I was watching this Richard Klein thing where he's talking tons about all the diopter shots that I even realized how many of them there are in this movie. Like I didn't even. Right. Some oh, of them yeah. didn't even, they're so cool that I didn't even occur to me. Like the one where towards the end where Andrew Stevens has his fingers on the chair and he's scratching the oh, chair. So good. And that's in focus, but his face is also in focus. That's a diopter shot. But the one in the train set is really the sloppiest because all that text in those like posters is mm. all doubled up and blurry. And I never even, it never, that, that scene always looked cool, but very strange to me. And it wasn't until this week that I was like, oh yeah, that's the diopter thing. And that's the line right. between the two focal points that they usually hide very well. But in that scene, they just seemed like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> but, but he doesn't also, usually do the diopters like top and bottom, right. which is no. what's interesting about that. Well, and, and, and this movie is full of weird, weird use of diopter. There's all these like angle diopter shots, like where it's like split heart, like a, Horizontally? No. What's the fucking thing where it diagonally? Angle? Diagonally. Thank you. Where it's split diagonally <laughs> on the screen. Uh, I think even I think that finger thing is a diagonal diopter shot. Um, anyway, but but there it is, diopters, which Richard Klein doesn't say he introduced Brian De Palma to. But no, uh, yeah, I, I mean, he's no, a he, diopter maniac, De Palma. <laughs> but I I wonder a diopter saurus. 
<laughs> That's pretty good. I was I, watching, uh, not the Brian De Palma movie, but the uh, but uh, on Criterion Channel, there's another interview that he does with what's his face. Um, Noah Baumbach. Noah, Noah Baumbach, where they're talking about where De Palma says like, you know, why wouldn't you use a diopter? Like, wh- I don't understand what the what the joy is of not having not using all of the screen to give you information. Like, he d- he's not a fan of like backgrounds being out of focus. Hmm. You know, he's like, well, you're just wasting space. Like, you could tell a whole other story on that side of the frame if you just use huh. a diopter. I'm like, yeah, okay. I kind of agree with him. I mean, I you know, I think most of the time they work really well. Mm-hmm. Um, this one was sloppy, like we said, but I also like, as someone who's like, I always love spotting these in his movies and other people's, it's, uh, it's just one of my favorite things. And I wonder sometimes because they shot this on film, if moving it up to a digital format mm-hmm. ever messes with it, because mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah. sure it's such a, a delicate balance to strike yeah. that I wonder if you notice it more <laughs> in some instances, because it's been upgraded and, you know, there's so much stuff when you get to, you know, 4k and everything, right. it's just, it's like, it's you like Peter Sellers. It's like Peter Sellers' nose in Doctor Strangelove. You're like, I'm not supposed to be seeing that. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but I, but I, I, I do. My memory tells me that I recognize some something weird about those shots, even when I saw it in the theater oh, yeah. in '78. So, and and also, I want to say that some of that scene, I don't think is diopter. I think is some weird split screen or. Or a process shot too. I can't remember because some of it is like, some of it like some of it is like you're seeing people's faces in the room and the train set, and some of it you're seeing those posters and the train set. But some of it I think you're seeing like other, seeing other things that aren't actually in the room and that train set. Yeah, it almost looks like a rear projection at moments. Yeah, some of it looks mm. like rear yeah. projection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know they definitely did so like. An interview I watched with De Palma during when this was released, he talked about using process shots for all the eyes and everything and every. So I'm sure there was there's a ton of stuff just mixed in here that you don't even notice always. Right. And and this time when I watch it, I'm like, wait, who is that? While she's driving the train, she also sees this bloody dead body on the floor. I'm like, who the fuck is that? And of course, at the very end of the movie, it's answered that it's Fiona Lewis. But that's another one of these things. It was like, wait. She sees the future. That's another one of her things. Okay. Yeah. Um, why not? Yeah. Why not? If you're gonna have a power. I mean, power really? Power. Why not? I mean, can you really think of a reason why not? No, but I just, I guess, I feel like a stronger movie would have, like, you know, I think these mo- movies are stronger when there are, even if they're, even if they're flawed. There's like a set of rules that gets introduced, uh-huh. and you're like, okay, this is what can happen in this movie, and this is what isn't happening in this movie. This movie, it's like anything can happen. Right, right. Well, tell it to Irvin Kirshner. Including all, the whole yeah. thing about somebody at some point says that 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 Andrew Stevens' character has been able to mind meld or whatever with machines, which is what he does in the amusement park. He's like unscrewing stuff, and it's like, how is that? What does that have to do with telekinesis <laughs> or fucking? You know, right, it's not like a computer program. Like I don't, you know. <laughs> You know, there, there's no semblance of intelligence. Shh, I'm talking to the screws. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really interesting washer I met. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, yeah, it's like the less questions you have to ask, the better a movie will be. Where it's just yeah. like, yeah, I accept that. Yeah, sure. You right. know. Right. You know, and as we go on, I'm sure we're all going to see where this feels like three or four movies bashing together occasionally. 
Well, like I'll it, say it now. There are those reviews, including Roger Ebert, where like the movie is so breathless that you don't have a, t- a chance to think about anything till yeah. it's over. That's not actually true. It's true that the first 45 minutes are breathless and the last 40 minutes or so are breathless. But there's that mm-hmm. midsection, which all the action stops and it's nothing but exposition and long, weird yeah. conversations between that unknown actress and Charles Durning and he's having his dark night of the soul. And right. The, and it's but, like, what the fuck? But yeah. he, but it's, it's also nice that part where, Ca- yeah, it's also that part where Cassavetes shows up and he's yeah. so creepy and scary. That scene where Amy Irving is in bed and he's standing in the doorway. Mm-hmm. Fuck, that is good. The yeah. dead and arm is a great touch. Dead arm. That's not how it works, is it? I mean, that's <laughs> my question. <laughs> but it's like a great personification, right? Like his evil deeds are still cursing him. You know, it's, yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's school. a great running gag in the movie. And yeah. Cassavetes, that's the thing, man. You know, Cassavetes is a guy who's like, you know, was loud and proud. I'm doing these for the paycheck. Like, I right. make my movies by getting yeah. the money from acting in these shit movies that I think are garbage and I badmouth before, during, and after. But <laughs> he's like the Steve Albini of actors. But he, but he's right. Yes, but he's fantastic in these movies. He's so good in this movie and yeah. in a movie that I love to rave about. Two minute warning. He's a fantastic leader of a SWAT team. He's so fucking good. He's the personification of evil in Rosemary's Baby. I mean, yes. is there anything more evil than a husband who will sell out his wife in that way? Yeah. It's amazing. Everybody talks about Cassavetti's the director, which I get. Like, I get it. I love him, too. But <laughs> let's talk about him as the actor. Like, he's yeah. amazing. Like, I yeah. think his directing career, unfortunately, has overshadowed how damn good of an actor he is. Yeah, he was really great. You know, so well, killing I, I a Chinese bookie is one of those neo noirs that I watched and thought, man, if De Palma had directed this, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't. Easy. What if De Palma had done faces? <laughs> De Palma that, would have done better with Gloria, I think. Faces, oh, faces oh, really would have benefited from a lot of diopter shots. Yeah, a lot of faces, right? Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, Peter has tracked his son. Oh, to Chicago. Ben. God bless you. I love the way you're trying to keep this thing on track and you're trying to do this synopsis. I mean, it's been a while since Ben has attempted a synopsis. So, yeah. bravo, I thought I'd bring sir. my A game. Bravo. Well, here's the thing. I guess we could talk about this for a minute now. This might be, depending on how things go, this might be the last episode Scott gets to do with us for a while. So, I wanted yeah. to make I wanted to make Scott's uh, intermission uh, before his intermission, I wanted to end on a high note with you too so because scott's you did. going on you tour. wanted to and now it's just scott's depression. going on tour we're in the middle of it no pressure for the rest of the episode maybe three months but maybe not maybe 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 you'll have the month of august to hang out yeah we'll, we'll see you're right you're right meanwhile peter has tracked his son to chicago after evading childress's agents peter meets with his girlfriend hester a paragon nurse who tells him about gillian Peter tells Gillian that Paragon's director is cooperating with PSI. This guy thinks it's okay. PSI, a covert agency led by Childress, which kidnaps psychic children to weaponize their powers for the American government, managing and controlling the psychics by brainwashing them and eliminating their families. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't even, I don't, I don't know where they got all that. Maybe from the book. <laughs> Maybe but, from the book. Yeah. But this is our chance to I talk about so. the hotel. What does Plymouth. PSI stand for? It's not p- pounds per square Pound, inch. Yes, is it? it's what you, it's how you inflate your fucking time. Psychic yeah. Science Institute. Oh. Ooh, nice. I don't know. I know, but oh, okay. that's better than yeah, what we It sounds like it's something Stan Lee would have wrote, like in the old Marvels, you know, yeah. just something obvious. Uh, 
Yeah, so, so, love, so we're going to talk about the Plymouth Hotel. I want to just okay. jump off with that and say that the I love the Plymouth Hotel front desk clerk. And when he says, yeah. I'm what you'd consider well-traveled. He had to be a local guy. So is the Plymouth Hotel a real hotel? It sure seems like it. It was. Like it was. That sign seems like a real sign, yeah. Yeah, it's gone now from what I could tell. It's that empty park that's on like Van Buren near State. Uh, next to like the uh, L track lines, not far from where you'd get off at the metro station if you're on the uh, Rock Island line, uh, right yeah. across from the Herald Washington. It was right over mm-hmm. there. It was at 22 West Van Buren was the address of the yeah. hotel. Yeah, and obviously same place as Blues Brothers. It looks um, like the same room, even. I, some people have stated it's the same room, but I don't know if they all looked like that or not. <laughs> Is know? it the same same area as in Child's Play too? Not Child's Play too, but Child's Play also as well. Yeah, no, I. Uh, that's a good question. It might be um, that whole area was just like filled with what they used to call, you know, flop houses, and mm-hmm. uh, that was like a very much a Skid Row area. And you know, if we're relating it to movies in Chicago and stuff, there was a lot of interesting, sketchy porn and exploitation theaters right over there. Yeah, and then uh, there was a the Tower of Records. Uh, yeah, there was. You're right. I remember actually going to that one yeah. before they, they took that away. But, uh, you know, th- this was like a great slice of like what used to be Chicago's uh, one of its skid rows. Uh, certainly the the biggest one in the loop. And, uh, you know, it's kind of great to see as like if you like the Blues Brothers, it's like you instantly have that flashback. <laughs> it's just like minus the cheese whiz. Now, mm. I don't like the Blues Brothers. So I'm you, are you guys talking about his hotel room? The room itself yeah. where he's, where he's yeah. flopped out. Okay. My question is about, and that's great. That's good news. But my question is the thing that, that is supposedly, I guess, the hotel lobby. To my eye, it for some reason reminded me of the double door. But are we thinking that that was actually the, the Plymouth Hotel hotel I lobby? I bet you it was the, 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 the lobby of the hotel. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah. It looks I'd vast. imagine. It looks huge. Like you don't looks, see much yeah. of it, but you get the sense that they're in a large space. You know, it, they could have shot it um, from different angles, I was thinking, than the Blues mm-hmm. Brothers. But it doesn't look too far off as far as, like, kind of grit and structure and everything. Uh, and those movies were probably only, what, like, two years apart, um, mm-hmm. you know, filming there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, as far as I could tell. And I would, I don't know. I mean, you never know with movies, right? But it looks like they probably would have shot, if they shoot the hotel room there, they probably would have shot the... Um, you know the lobby, and it's got to be the Blues the... Brothers. The Blues Brothers has a shot of the hotel lobby as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's where that's where Elwood gives him the cheese whiz. The guy was asking for. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's instantly just like a flashback to like this is before they really started to gut the loop more and more. You know, like every year from the late seventies on more and more buildings were being, you know, torn down and, uh, you know, uh, it's, you know, a lot of the iconic stuff stayed, but they really started to, you know, they, there, there was a movement starting in the late seventies and the early eighties that mayor Jane Byrne inherited where they were literally trying to turn state street into a mini mall with Mm. no, no street traffic or anything. So there was like a big urban renewal push in that vicinity. So this was like, you weren't going to see this place, you know, all that much longer. Yeah, they're going to Times Square the fuck out of that. That's exactly. <laughs> yep. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. I mean, every time Kirk Douglas runs in front of the train, 
I mean, I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> You're the, not Spartacus uh, whole, anymore. That whole sequence of him escaping from the hotel, jumping out the fire escape onto that platform, onto the thing, crossing the L tracks, is so beautifully shot and edited. Like, that must be an example of some of the stuff that Richard Klein talks about walking into De Palma's office and it being co- every wall covered with sketches, storyboards of every single shot because it's so seamlessly edited and shot. And like I said before, you never get even a hint that you're not seeing Kirk Douglas do any of that stuff. Yeah. It's and he really comes across as great. like the baddest motherfucker spy ever in this movie, which is. You know, which is what I kind of didn't remember, but it was kind of charming this time around. And it almost, you almost feel like he might spend the whole movie just in his boxer shorts, and he probably would have preferred it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also we're, we're love, just jealous. I, I, I can't say enough how much I've always loved the whole Mother Knuckles sequence. Just the fact that her name is Mother Knuckles, that Kirk Douglas says Mother Knuckles. <laughs> It's like a scene right out of High Mom. It, it's completely like just a throwback to that. <clears throat> and it works, I think, because like we talked about, one thing I like about De Palma is that he always throws humor into these movies, which elevates it versus something like uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. And I love that line, I told you we should have moved to Melrose Park, because yep. that's such yep. a Chicago line. <laughs> Especially in this era, right? I yeah. love Mother Knuckles when she says, MASH, I'll wait till sunrise semester to untie them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, and then uh, and then the and the wife, the the Mrs. Knuckles says, if you if you had to ask me what happened to the milk of human kindness, I have to tell you the whole world just dried up at the tit. Nice. Yeah. It's and that's Gordon good. Jump from WKRP as Gordon Mr. Jump, who we all remember his witness. He thought turkeys could fly, right? And of course, from the bicycle, the bicycle shop owner from the very special episode of Different Strokes. Oh, I don't remember that. What, Did, which is he spe- the one who wanted to molest Arnold? He's the one who uh, gets uh, Dudley into the bathtub, yeah. Oh, okay. wow. I got to see that. Oh, you've never seen that one? Yeah. No. <laughs> That's a classic, classic, classic very special Holy episode. Shit. Perhaps the, the ultimate, yeah. the quintessential very special episode, I think. That or the Nancy Reagan one. That I was just about to say. Nancy Reagan's not in that episode, is she? <laughs> I, yeah. no, I don't think she was involved. Don't do that. <laughs> don't take baths. Just say no. Just, just say, say no, no to, to baths, baths with Jordan Gump. Or Gordon Jump. <laughs> Jordan Gump. Jordan Gump. <laughs> Right, and in an example of what I'm saying about the seasoned character actors versus complete unknowns, Mother Knuckles herself, who holds holds her weight and then some in that scene, has never mm-hmm. been in another movie that I could find. Maybe she's a Chicago stage actress? I'm sure they all... That's what I was wondering before. Yeah. They all ended up on at Steppenwolf, if they didn't end up yeah. in movies. Yeah. 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 This movie soured them. Yeah. Fuck Hollywood. I'm not going there. <laughs> Well, you know, I feel like that's like such a like a go to thing for movies, especially in this era where it's like the smaller roles. You just kind of let's pick off some local talent if it's there. Yeah. Um, you know, and it works. I mean, that's how we get our fronds, right? Right. There's yeah. Something- that, oh, dude, I didn't even think of that. That's that totally makes sense. That's yeah. He probably clicked so well with Franz, Franz, well, Franz. Because you get, you know, Steppenwolf, you have David Mamet right. in town, yeah. you have Stuart Gordon running totally. the organic theater. So, I mean. There is a healthy scene if you're going to be picking off talent here. Absolutely. And and not all of them wanted to leave, right? No. Not yeah, most yet. of them, yeah, you, you were joking about the fuck Hollywood, but there probably was that yep. kind of notion going around. No, it was a golden age of theater in Chicago at that time, so you could definitely get work. 
It was a glorious time. It was a glorious time. Uh, I'm going to say this. This might be sensitive for you, Scott, but uh, Kirk Douglas Uh with the shoe white in his hair and the pillow sticking out of his pants. He's going to great lengths to to disguise himself. But it seems like the first thing you should do if you're Kirk Douglas is cover up that cleft chin because that's the most (laughs) recognizable part of you. (laughs) Meanwhile, that thing's just sticking out like a sore thumb. And... uh, but but it it's always driven me crazy. I remember being a twelve year old and watching the scene where he's putting that outfit together and sticking the pillow down his pants, and he doesn't button that fucking shirt. And I'm like, dude, button that shirt so they're not seeing the pillow anymore. Always drives me crazy every single time I watch that scene. Uh, that's great. Yeah, that that whole sequence. You know, it kind of made me wish though that it was like I almost wish it would have just stayed with him for most of the movie because I feel like a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the secondary stories they try and spin kind of end up going nowhere for me at least Mm -hmm. where at least that was like a dynamic like i think this story could have been streamlined to where it was like it's you you follow the douglas character and then he meets some of these other people you want to have along the way or has some kind of you know back and forth more so because he disappears for such a huge chunk of the movie and you know, I actually think he's he's really having fun with this and so it's like almost a shame when you don't see him for a while yeah, most of the reviews I read though are like are completely disagree with you. Yeah, they're very like, true. They're like that stuff is is where the movie's the least interesting. I'm not sure yeah. which one I agree with, but I mean, or just even go the other way from what I'm saying, right? Like it's just uh, you know, like the Durning stuff just didn't have a great payoff. Even though I love Durning, so I'm not going to complain about right. it. But you know, it's and then it's like they have this whole tease about. Will the, will uh, Amy Irving and uh, the other psychic guy, will they, you know, they're twins, they're connected, they're this. Right. Oh, and they don't even really interact, and right. they don't really do anything together. It's like, well, like, right. he can, he can I save think the me. Twist, the- I think that the twist that they're building towards, and I don't know how well it works, I feel like it, I feel, I remember, I think I remember as a kid thinking like, oh, fuck, this is a real shock ending. Is that when they, you know, their, their whole quest is to get to this guy, both right. of them, Kirk Douglas and Amy Irving both desperately want to connect. She thinks she's found her soulmate and he knows that he loves his son and they both arrive there to find out that he wants nothing to do with either one of them. He hates her. He thinks she's there just to replace him and Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, it's hard for me to understand what's going on in Andrew Stevens character's head for the last five minutes of this movie. His interaction with Kirk Douglas, like what that's about. Um, but it's not good. <laughs> but no. but I would say he's still I, mad I hear about what you're the, saying. I wouldn't want any less of Amy Irving, and and clearly a lot of the time when we're not with Kirk Douglas, we're with Amy Irving. But I think you're right. I do think that this is a two-hour movie that would that if you lost some of that, if you lost 20 minutes at least out of that middle 40, if you ditched the whole scene. Now I know you're saying the one with Cassavetes showing up at night is creepy, but the long scene between Charles Durning and that woman where they're going back and forth over drinks about what they're mm-hmm. going to do with Amy Irving or not do yeah. with Amy Irving. Who the fuck needs that? I understand it's a character beat, and I understand Charles Durning, that's his big scene, and he probably lobbied hard to keep it in, but cut that fucking thing out, and you've got a better movie as far as I'm concerned. I like that scene a lot, but you're right. Uh, nobody needs it. I mean, I, I can't think of many De Palma movies that are this overstuffed. It's like... You know, the writer of the novel wrote the screenplay, so clearly he's trying mm-hmm. to get in as much of the stuff from the book as possible. Yeah. De Palma developing his own scripts or adapting his own scripts are sometimes his best movies, in my opinion. Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, 
I think, you know, something like Bonfire of the Vanities, like, for instance, which, you know, if you know the story behind the making of that, that really went off the rails because it was just like the pressure of having to adapt that book, right? right? Where it's like De Palma starting from scratch. But then again, you look at Carrie... He did what he wanted with Carrie, and the the book Carrie versus the movie is very different. So it's like, you know, I just don't know how much he messed with the script here. This kind of almost felt like this was a job for hire, right? For De Palma more than like I'm building this or putting my stamp, right. uh, you know, from the scratch on it. It is kind of weird that he went right into another telekinetic movie, exactly. Right Carrie, right. yeah. was that was was that just a trend that was happening? Uh, did he I, I think this is the. Get, I, I think this is one of the only times where you can clearly say like this is De Palma chasing his most recent success or getting pressured into yep. you know try them trying to put De Palma in this box like the studio mm-hmm. is saying this is what you're good at here's the next carry right. for you and I think this 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 movie is is one of the is is a really helpful reminder of you know I think Stephen King gets shit on and 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 that's. I think that's justified a lot of times. Certainly he gets shit on with all of the films that are made from his movies, which, you know, 95% of are the worst fucking things you've ever seen. And typically the ones that he has a hand in adapting himself or writing the screenplay for are the worst of the worst. But the, the three times for me that actually good directors have taken Stephen King stories and, and run with them are, Here we go. Are, are all great movies. <laughs> uh, uh, Carrie, The Shining, uh-huh. and The Best of Them, uh-huh. The Dead Zone, which Scott knows is the case. Um, oh, I'm with you on Dead Zone, Ben. I really like Dead Zone. I think I, I'd even say Shawshank, though, because Shawshank is fairly is a fairly you know reasonable departure from the book. Uh, or no, from the short story. no, 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 no. I think Shawshank is really uh, faithful. Well, I mean, they put their own spin on it. Like, the whole red character and everything is, is somewhat different and everything. Because he's black? Yeah, I'm I'm just saying. they. they <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why they call me red, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, I think they they adapt that enough, though, for its own... Um, I mean, yeah, they don't change the story overall. None of those things that actually Ben mentioned change them, you know, really overall. But I mean, it's putting I, your wait, own wait, spin but on do, it. But do all three of you put Shawshank Redemption... On the same level as the three movies I mentioned? No, I don't. Right. I, I do. I, I do. hate Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I'm a big fan of all four that you mentioned. So, yeah. but those would probably well, be my. How four do you favorite. guys feel about? I like Christine. I, I like Christine. Too. I like Christine as well. Yeah, mm. I like it more when I rewatched it because I was mm-hmm. way more negative on it in the past. Um, that's not not very faithful to the book. I remember. No, and I wish that's the the the. I mean, I'm I'm being. I mean, I've come to appreciate The Shining for what it is, the movie, but I I remember as a Stephen King fan watching The Shining when it came out and being like, this fucking sucked. And right. that, that was my same problem with Christine is that it, 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 it lost the best parts of the book and replaced them with stuff that made no sense. And I'm like, right, but when, when Stephen King did his own adaptation, put I all know. that stuff from the no, book, I know. totally doesn't work. And that would have You're happened right. with Christine too. I mean, it's interesting that in all the years since then, like, Kubrick's The Shining has supplanted King's The Shining. <laughs> True. You know? Yeah. But not the book. Well, I think so, yes. I, I think that's more people saying, know, you know the movie than the book. In the popular consciousness, yes. But. That's right. I mean, so much so that, what, that Dr. Sleep? Uh, yeah. That, that the sequel had to be changed because everybody knows Kubrick's Shining, and it's sort of become... 
the the text or the canon or, or whatever. Do we think Wait, though that? Wait, did they change it? Whoa, 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 whoa! Did the doc? Yeah. I didn't read Doctor Sleep. In the Doctor Sleep book, is uh, the Scatman Crothers character dead? Because he uh, does not get killed in the book. Well, I, well, I know that you know that the ending is completely different because uh, it the the, the ending hotel of the movies the Doctor hotel, Sleep or the book Doctor. Yeah, Sleep? the ending of Doctor Sleep is different than the ending of Doctor Sleep in the book because in the oh. book. The book is like a sequel to the book, and right. the movie is like a sequel, sequel to, to the, the movie. movie. Right. Right. Okay. But okay. I digress. That makes sense. No, that Speaking makes of grass, it's snodgrass and not snodgrass. Oh, did I say snodgrass? No, no, no. I'm just oh. saying. Putting it out in the Trying world. to steer us back to the, to the, the fury. fury. And, and here's another thing I will say about that sagging middle section. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about me. Uh, they got the pizza right. They got the Chicago pizza right. You know, that is that's actually true. Chicago pizza. Yeah, that's true. It's was a, it the tavern style? No, it was not tavern style. I it didn't was, notice it was the, the pizza. The, the, the crust. Dish? It was the deep dish. Yeah. Which, every time they're eating pizza on Seinfeld, they're eating the, the Chicago crust pizza. Really? Does that strike anybody yeah. else as weird? So you're that saying deep dish crazy. is the Chicago pizza? Uh oh. Yes, go. I am. Because I'm, really, I'm not going to have this conversation. Oh, I, mean, I don't eat it, but it, yes, it's it tavern is. style. I always say. No, I know what you say, and I know what you're saying. <laughs> but but once again, in the public consciousness, yeah, deep dish is Chicago style. That's true. That's what true. What do you mean you don't yes. eat it, Scott? You told you told me you eat it. You, I go that... for stuffed. Yeah. If, oh. if I'm stuffed and. And okay. stuffed and 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 uh, deep dish are different. Remind me, I can't even remember who's eating pizza when in this movie. Uh, it's during that montage scene where it shows how you know the happy times, which Gillian at the institute might have been three days or something. Okay. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, right. Her and Charles Durning, around, having their yeah. little romance. I never wanted to eat a Sunday more than watching this movie. Actually, <laughs> when they when she rolled out that tray, I'm like, all right, I can get oh. down on that. Right. It was a nice setup. It was nice. I like that. All the when Charles right Durning, there. Charles Durning almost dances in this movie. He says, I, I was oh, I Fred know. Astaire. And I'm like, come on, man, go for it. He didn't get to be Fred Astaire, but he is in that awesome musical number in uh, Best Little Whorehouse in right. Texas. That yep. is his finest moment. But Great. he also does amazing dancing in uh, that Coen Brothers movie, No Brother Where Art Thou. Oh, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, he did. Well, he did so much Broadway, right? So I mean, really? Yeah, he was a big stage actor for years. Uh, but yeah, no, the uh, the Durning. As soon as he said dancing, I'm like, you can't say dancing with Charles Durning now in my mind. Like, I wanted to see a little little yeah. hoofing of some kind. Yeah, yeah. He does a, he does a step or two. He does a step. Or two. Yeah, yeah. He's a graceful man. Right. So, as Gillian's psychic prowess grows, she begins experiencing visions of Robin's abuse at the hands of Look the at Institute. Look at Ben, staying on track. Man, it is amazing. <laughs> go, go, Ben, go. Uh, including a failed escape attempt. Gillian eventually forms a telepathic link to Robin, knowing that she knows too much and that her powers are growing. Childress orders that Gillian be transported to PSI headquarters where Robin is being kept. Hester overhears Childress's conversation and informs Peter, who plans a rescue, hoping she can lead him to Robin. So this is that, this is, the, the, that's their summing up of the middle section of this movie. Um, 
nothing good happens in Lake Forest. <laughs> No, but I, but I, but I That's wrote true. what, I, what yeah. we've already said. Like, this is this is the De Palma movie that really shows his strengths as a filmmaker because he's able to visually elevate even this most boring, hackiest part of the movie. Right. You know, and they like say the you're Sunday only as good as your script, but De Palma makes the Fury considerably better than the script. And can you imagine how much directier it would have been had it been directed by Irvin Kirshner or Michael Winner or even Harold Becker? What did I just watch? Harold Becker. Oh, The Onion Field, which is okay, but. Whatever. Um, there is one good bit, I think, during this, which is those guys doing surveillance. Oh. And one of them is Frank Yablons, Yabl- right. actually, I think. Tough yeah. guy number all one. Right. Yeah. All right, asshole <laughs> oh, number one and asshole number two. Stop cluttering up this frequency. Again, some really of the, the best parts are the comedy in this one. I think yeah. some of the most memorable sequences. Mike, have you seen Hi, Mom? I have not seen Hi, Mom. You should check it out. I, I, I'd be curious to see what you think of it's it. been on my short list for a while but it's you know just like anything else it's on that list that keeps getting longer and longer greetings yeah, and hi mom both have some just jaw-dropping stuff in it yeah it now, what, about the, what about the movie he made right after this home movies which i saw in a theater yeah, when it came out it. and don't remember it's anything about it and have never seen it since it's the only one of his other than some of his newer stuff that i haven't seen actually i've uh, seen obsession i liked obsession a lot i mean that's total Hitchcock uh, ripoff right there, but it's pretty well, good. I w- yeah, I was hearing the other day that somebody was saying that Home Movies has all that stuff that he later used again in Dressed to Kill about following his dad mm. to, to to his office, and he he suspected he was having an affair. Yeah, and I guess that's all in Home Movies. Well, Keith Gordon, I think, is the star of Home Movies too. Yes. So oh, he is. Movies. Yeah. Was it, so basically, uh, yeah. Dress to Kill is just a remake of Home Movies? <laughs> no, 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 no. It definitely isn't. Well, Kirk Douglas it. is in Home Movies, too. Is he? Yeah. Huh. I didn't see it, but I know he was on the poster, and I've seen clips from it. But it was... Right. Be- it was well, what I was he wearing? Which... <laughs> Dude, I think it was much. like Sarah shirtless. Lawrence. He, he was made of it with like Sarah Lawrence graduate student. Yeah. So it's it was, like a student it, film. Yeah, really? so it was like an experiment film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the other thing in the interview he was talking about, um, him and Frankie Blondes were talking about in the interview I watched was the deconstructed man was he was his next like movie outside of that, like his next studio film. And that was like the dream project that I guess De Palma always wanted to make and never made. And it's a fantastic like sci-fi classic if you if you've never read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially a, a mystery in the future where, firearms guns of all types are outlawed and a murder occurred with a gun and you have to kind of figure out how the guy got the gun and who killed him and everything and it's like a a detective story that de palma probably would have killed but he never really did a sci-fi movie uh in that vein so it'd mission be interesting hmm. well okay mission i guess i'm forgetting that one yeah <laughs> let's pretend that one didn't happen um, the rescue is successful, but Hester is killed in the process. Using Gillian's powers, she and Peter track down Robin to a remote mansion in the countryside, a.k.a. PSI headquarters, I think. Uh, is it Gillian just... or Jillian? It's Gillian. Well, I always say Jillian, but in the movie they keep saying Gillian. Yeah. They, but they, sh- they say Jillian, too. Do they, they can't seem to make up their mind in the movie. I Am I says, crazy? Who says Jillian? I only heard, I only heard Gillian, Jillian, and I thought that was so odd. No, somebody... Is it isn't that how isn't that how and I'll say it the wrong way I think isn't that how Jillian Welch says her name too doesn't she say Gillian 
Scott, you're in the music biz. In the movie? No, just like in real life. Gillian Welch, the singer-songwriter. I have no idea who that is. Well, I gotta send you some, some music, dude. No, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> you're Speaking of, I just heard that Dusty Hill died. Yeah, uh, I saw oh. that too. So, R.I.P. Uh, uh, they tracked him down uh, to where Childress and his handler Susan have spent the last several months grooming and experimenting on him. The Robin's abilities have grown to unprecedented levels. He gradually becomes increasingly unstable from the psychological strain of his superior's machinations, but also all the drugs they're giving him, uh, culminating in a mass murder inside Old Chicago, an indoor amusement park. Now, Here's my question. Is Old Chicago still a thing? Let, uh, I got no. some stuff about Old Chicago there. here. It's here he goes. Long Come gone. On, Mike. It's long gone. It was only around for like five years. It was at 555 South Bolingbrook Drive in Bolingbrook, Illinois. I'm not sure what's there now, but the Target, there's a Target out. Or not a Target, a uh, Ikea out in Bolingbrook. It was the first indoor amusement park in the world. It's basically, That's basically the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... Here's my favorite bit of Let's trivia about it is that it host they hosted the Ramones on October twentieth, nineteen seventy nine. Nice. So they started doing punk shows or well, rock shows, and they got a lot of like punk and like new wave acts around that time. Because I want to say the Jam played there as well, and uh, it was one of three Chicago stops for Ramones that year. I would have guessed that it was at Navy Pier that that that, that scene. Oh, right. interesting. But yeah, no, you, you didn't even know about Old Chicago. No, I had no idea. So this, famously, is, this is news to me. Famously, my family traveled cross country in the summer of 77, and I saw Star Wars in Fam- Chicago on that trip. <laughs> this but is I, famous. Yeah. I also think that we went to Old Chicago. i got to ask my mom. But I think we, because that whole trip was like, my parents wanted us to go camping every night. We wanted to stay at hotels. We never got to stay at hotels. They wanted us to go sightseeing all the time, see Grand Canyon, all that shit. We never wanted to. But what we did want to do was go to an amusement park. So anytime we were anywhere near an amusement park, we were like, we need to go to this fucking thing. Especially if we're going to be sleeping in a tent tonight. And especially if we have to look at a fucking another, another monument <laughs> the next day. Like, I yeah. found so, a pretty good uh, a notable commercial featuring George Went for Old oh, Chicago. Old Ch- they had a couple good old commercials. Because now before Old Chicago, it was in a different area. It was in the city proper. It was Riverview, which yeah. is like the other big amusement park that... You know, the old timers talk about it. it was that was one of my mom's favorite hangouts. And then there was this. And I think this place, I think old Chicago ended up closing. There was a lot of safety concerns. There was always a problem with, I mean, psychics sending the Ferris wheel off. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then Great America Six but Flags also, came around. Did you see that there's this thing called Mansion of Horrors inside? I zoned Chicago. in on that. Yeah. yeah. That lo- that looks pretty great. Um, was that a thing that was real, or did they put that in for the scene? No, that was there. Was that real. was yeah, it's real. Yeah, um, I had to look that up. I uh, I think it's interesting too because it's like that's one of my favorite things in a movie is uh, when you see that a movie was actually shot at a theme park or something that was like you know actually not a set. It's really kind of fascinating. It's like a time capsule, and uh, yeah. this is certainly a fun. one. I mean, this is probably the best footage of that place I've seen. But I will say. I don't know if Mike mentioned it. Not only were the Ramones there, but there's footage of them performing there yes. and walking around the park, hanging out in the park, going on rides and stuff. So that's on YouTube. Some Super 8 footage shot by Don Geddes, who was part of that yes. Chicago bar band scene. Because he still plays. He's lives in Joliet now. I got talking to him, and he's got he's got boxes of old Super 8 footage that he's been meaning to convert of wow. old rock and roll shows that he went to. 
Yeah, that was part of that movie, The Ramones Meet the Phantom. (laughs) (laughs) That'd probably be, yeah, just as good of a movie, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're just (laughs) as good of actors as... Uh, so that this, this section of the film is where we have the slow motion escape, which we also talked about. But I think that's the out of all the out of all the set pieces, I think that's the standout. Beautiful slow. No, motion. that was like I said. That was the my my introduction to the Fury was that clip that they showed on uh, in that movie Terror in the Isles, which was hosted by Nancy Allen and Donald Pleasance. Oh yeah, you know you're talking about the amusement park thing, which yes. Which oh yes, is awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which as a 12 year old, that was that was what I fixated on too, and that's what everyone showed as clips. But I'm talking about we're also covering the section where they break out of the uh, Paragon Institute and, and Hester uh, Carrie Snodgrass gets killed. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, but that's to me that's the other thing is like anytime you see any of these other directors in the 70s flirting with slow motion you're like dude stop you don't know what you're doing the only one who knows right. how to do this is De Palma um, and this might Taxi be, driver yeah but that's not oh well yeah yes you're right and I and and Taxi Driver is what 76 76 yeah was yep. it before? So it was. Do you think they it's were shooting this. at the same time, Carrie and? But but Carrie's got all that slow motion at the end too. I'm trying to think which came first, Taxi Driver or Carrie, or they must have been shooting at the same time. I don't want to say that De Palma was stealing from Scorsese, so that's what I'm. No, I don't. Trying I to. don't think that's the case. Well, I mean, you you go Peck and Paw before any of them, right? Yeah. If you're talking slow mo yeah, revolution. And, but no, no, no. But that's a different. Again, I was because because at first when he said Taxi Driver, I was thinking of just some of those shots of like the rain on the. Okay. Cab windshield. I forgot about the whole fantastic climax of Taxi Driver, where Peck and Paw. I mean, I guess there's, I guess there's a climactic slow. It doesn't feel the same to me. It's not quite the. They're same all used differently. Of, all three of these yeah. people. Yeah, for sure. Well, Peck and Paw always did this thing, which I don't love, which is that the sound is all slow motion too. You know, where you're hearing her and go, and, you know, <laughs> Palma and. Uh, uh, Scorsese doesn't have any of that at the end of Taxi Driver, does he? You're not hearing anybody say anything in slow motion, are you, when he's uh, shooting everything? No, no, I, I, don't, I don't remember think anything so. like that. But, I mean, you know, he he goes for the operatic in the same way that De Palma mm-hmm. does, too. Yes, absolutely. That's what it is. It's operatic. And also dreamlike. Uh, and lots is, of reds. I also, I also feel like that that escape scene sort of justifies the 40 minutes of dialogue and exposition because it's like you it all builds to that incredible sequence like you you know you suddenly realize maybe it's been worth it all this back and forth because now this scene the tragedy and the triumph of this scene is paying off in a way that if you hadn't had that 30 minutes before it maybe not wouldn't be as exciting or as uh sad or you know, that's that I do I do I still think you could get rid of the Durning and the head of the institute scene but I think you need all the Hester stuff in order for her death to mean something. Well, what about that long take just before the before she runs out the door? That's like that terrific. whole thing, yeah. setting that up. That's that's pretty great. That's all handheld. I heard Richard Klein, the cinematographer, talk about it. Um, they did it in like two or three takes. Uh, I don't know which one they used, but he said it worked great. He said the only thing about it is, and and it's. And they did a great job with this. It's a handheld camera, which was very noisy. So all the dialogue in that scene are, is post-dubbed, um, which I don't mm. think feels that way at all. It's hmm. great. Does, does the ending of this movie 
at this point on sort of remind anybody else of the ending of Django Unchained? Like, you know, where somebody gets killed in, in this, in this jailbreak type of thing and then they go away and then they come back and you know there's more violence and then you, you know what there's just i was thinking that watching it i'm well, probably wrong but no i i mean it makes all the sense in the world since tarantino is always stealing from de palma yeah and that's um, his favorite of the movie brats he's always said so yeah i'm sure he took quite a bit yeah uh i was also uh <laughs> listening to somebody today so that that whole location that mansion that beautiful where the you get that one shot where andrew stevens is trying to pole vault and you see that crazy that was a that would have been a great place to shoot an american version of the shining um hmm. uh there's all those like hedge rows and stuff but they were gonna an use american that. version of the shining well you know kubrick was shot it in england that's what i'm okay. trying to say on, in a studio uh <laughs> built the whole fucking thing from scratch like a lunatic uh like a boss i love i love that behind the scenes footage from the shining that little oh, it's great his daughter made yeah oh, yelling at shelly duvall it's good times nickel Nich- man Schwan. was a man <laughs> um uh what was i gonna say though I don't know. I don't know. who cares oh there's, there's the other thing besides the slow motion that i love about this movie he the does pole vaulting it, that's great too, but yes, but the, the that's what you were it, talking about. No, I know, but but what I was about to say is that I think they do it at least two times, maybe three times, maybe more, where he does these instead of a zoom in to something, he does these three quick cuts that like, yeah. take the place of a zoom in. I think the first time is when she grabs or Charles Jernan grabs her hand on the steps, and mm-hmm. it's really scary because it's really fast. George Miller does the same thing in Mad Max. But not nearly as fast and not nearly as much of like a shock cut. But every time they do it in this movie, I'm like, God damn, that's great. And so much well, yeah. cooler. Than Didn't De Palma start movie. doing that in Carrie? Just before she makes Travolta's car yeah. flip over? Yes. And like that close up to her face. But I think these great. are even faster and scarier. But that, you're yeah. right, it's in Carrie too. But it's yeah. an effective De Palma trick for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You know, if we're talking about like they're at the Institute, too, before I forget. um, Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting because, okay, he can't do the pole vaulting. He keeps messing it up. And then they talk to the his, you know, I don't know what you would call her, his girlfriend slash handler, uh, the older British lady. His handler. Yeah. Yeah, And, uh, you know, he asks, you know, about what it's like sleeping with him and everything. It's like he tries to satisfy me. So between that and him messing up the pole vaulting, he's ipping. He he can't get it up now, right? Like he's he's ah. done so because of his powers. Is what I kind of like. Yeah. Like he's mentally fail or he's mentally going, you know, through the roof, but physically he's failing. So I thought yeah. that was an interesting touch that kind of sprinkled in. That's, yeah. that's how I interpreted it. No, there's a lot of sexual stuff going yeah, on. It's not yeah. a, it's not a De Palma movie if there isn't. Right. It, right. Fair. It's also probably a side effect to these massive amount of drugs they're giving him enough drugs to mm-hmm. kill someone. They, like, you can't even believe that that's the amount of drugs they're giving them. Well, he can't believe that he's sleeping with her either. I mean, right. yeah, he's like, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. fucking with his head. She is they, a stone-cold fox, that is for yeah. sure. Get a for, sci-fi version of uh, My Tutor with those two, right? <laughs> right. Like, Good for him. Yeah. Um, there's that moment on the bus... After they after they escape and it's nighttime and Amy Irving, this is the part of the movie that that is 
that feels like maybe this is where they cut something and it's it's too bad because I feel like this feels truncated and weird. Um, first of all, that little moment where Kirk Douglas starts crying and he like turns his head and he's like, that's not entirely convincing, although it's interesting that, that they that it's in there at all. Why, because Kirk uh, Douglas has never cried in his life? It seems like it was more it, so yeah. that he was wearing a shirt in that. <laughs> this thing is tight. Which made it unaware of shirts and I don't cry. Kirk Douglas seems like the real life version of, of the Robin character to me. Like he's a guy who's like so amped up on Coke or whatever the fuck for like 40 years straight that like he can't even see straight. He's busy jumping over train tracks like it's nothing, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> raping Farrah Fawcett whenever he can. Um, but, uh, but, but, and then the, the, uh, the transition from them like hugging each other and falling asleep in each other's arms and then him leaving her on the bus. It doesn't seem like he would do that. Well, he doesn't want her to die. I get it, but I feel like he would do it in some other way, like just talk her through it or something. I don't think he would just abandon her like that. That would seem weird to me. It's clumsy. It's clumsy, exactly. All right, here we go. This is the last section of the uh, plot uh, synopsis. As Peter and Dylan infiltrate the mansion, Robin senses her presence. Believing that PSI intends to kill him and replace him with another psychic, he finally snaps. I don't know about finally. I think he's been snapping. (laughs) Telekinetically torturing and killing Susan, Peter confronts his son, but Robin, a now schizoid, furiously attacks him. Robin is thrown out the window and scratches Peter when he tries to save him from falling. When Robin plunges to the ground, a distraught Peter flings himself after killing himself. Robin lingers a bit, before finally dying and seems to make some form of psychic contact with Gillian. He transfers his refined powers to her, implying that she will save herself from Childress and avenge his death. Well, I don't know why they're saying implying. Just wait and see. You don't need to worry about an implication. The next morning, Childress approaches Gillian and starts manipulating her to get her to connect with him. Understanding his long-term intentions, she embraces her psychic abilities and avenges the deaths of Robin and Peter by causing Childress's body to explode. Yeah. What about Hester? It was, she was avenging Hester, too. God damn it, you stupid Wikipedia. Justice that, for Hester. That scene yeah. where the where the, the handler hot chip oh. spins around and stuff and the blood, mm-hmm. like, just yeah. being, you know, thrown against the wall and the... Jackson spin Pollock. art. It's like spin art. It's like a giant yeah. spin art. That's yeah. such a, that is really great. That's such a terrific uh, sequence, and I think Hereditary owes a lot yep. to that. Yes, that that scene where uh, Michael oh, I, Douglas walks in and and Andrew Stevens is is hovering above him, Kirk, and then Douglas. he comes down on him. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> what did I say? Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. Yeah. The yeah. same. I, I was thinking of uh, Disclosure. I was thinking of Behind the Candelabra. Oh, that's a good one. But yeah, where Andrew Stevens is, is hanging out. I mean, that is totally hereditary. Yeah, I love it. That That was like, like you said, like the movie kind of, it's kind of messy. But the, the climax, everything that happens for that last 20 minutes, like makes it worthwhile, I think. It's a good movie. It, it's almost yeah. like De Palma. It's kind of the same thing he did with Femme Fatale. He's like putting together all the things that he does and trying to stuff it all in there. Like here's the comedy yeah. bits. Here's the horror bits. Here's, here's the Hitchcock ripping off. Right. Here's the sci-fi. Yeah. And he, I, you know what? And I think the problem with the director, like the Palma, when you have a legacy of so many great films, the B stuff 
like even if De Palma knew going into it, yeah, this is just kind of a B movie. This is uh, a paycheck or whatever you want to say gets lost or people put it on a lower tier mm -hmm. because yeah. of their reputation. All right. Like me. Look, I mean, here's the seriously, thing. I was ready to write yeah. this thing off. Like when no, I think ben was like, people. let's watch this. I was like, right. you got any other ideas? But if you forget about home movies, which is easy to forget about, you go carry the fury dress to kill and blowout. That's a four picture run where the fury is the weak link. But if the fury is the weak link in that four picture run, that's still a pretty amazing four picture. Exactly. Run. And if you want to, you, you throw in body double as the fifth in a five picture run. And I also think like, yes, okay, that's the second weakest link. I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know what I like more body double or the fury. And they're both, they're both at least a cut below those other three, but there's, it's still pretty, it's an impressive five movie streak right there. Body double is more De Palma though. Yeah. Palma that's what I was. Yeah. You took the words right out of mouth, my mouth and it, which was actually maybe why the fury, you might want to give more credit to that because it's him doing something a little left of center for himself. He feels like a, a guy for hire for this movie more than everything else we're really talking about in that in that streak. Yeah, um, but you definitely you know, feel his stink all over it. You have yeah. to look a little harder, <laughs> or smell a little harder for no, it. No, no, he's definitely he's definitely there. But you could tell, yeah, this was just some kind of trashy bestseller that he's trying to make heads or tails. But you could of. say the exact same thing about Carrie. Yeah. Absolutely, no, you absolutely. Think of it as a classic now, but it's De Palma for hire doing a Stephen King movie. No, no, you're totally right. Well, that, but I think with that one too, he was really killing for a hit. Like he really needed something to click with that with Carrie. So, and not to say he wasn't trying with this. I mean, there's spectacular stuff in the Fury. Um, but he no, really seems to be going for broke with Carrie, like you said, yeah. Adam. Yeah. Versus yeah, the Fury, uh -huh. where I feel like he is just kind of. I mean, it's not like he's not putting his any effort into it at all, but it's it's not the same. Doesn't have that same vibe. I don't it know if he has have a the beat prom on scene. It. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. there's there's a few scenes in De Palma's filmography that are as as De Palma as that prom scene. Right, you know? from the split screen to oh, yeah. the violence yeah. to the special it's, effects. It's amazing. Slow-mo. Yeah. A lot of slow-mo. The greatest yeah. hits of De Palma before we knew what De Palma's greatest hits would look like. Yeah. Because yeah, Obsession, but... I think, was a flop for him. Yeah. Yeah, I don't so think Obsession did well, and Obsession is pretty good. Oh, it's a good movie. But again, it's it's another one. It's just pretty good. It does not have the resonance no. that Carrie has. No. You know, I was reading something that uh, this guy, Bill Chambers, over at Film Freak Central, the way he described De Palma is, what you learn to accept about De Palma is that sometimes he's Hitchcock and sometimes he's Ed Wood. <laughs> I and think, I think that's pretty good. I like that. That's... That is... Well, that last not. movie... What's the last movie called? Domino? Oh, no. I've avoided that because I want to not think negatively of him. <laughs> it just looked and sounded terrible. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And yeah. it's well, De Palma trying to do De Palma, but it's like, what happened to this guy? There's Whoa, something to be yeah. said for Tarantino when he went on his, uh, you know, the, the podcast mm -hmm. run talking about wanting to be done after 10 films because there are a lot of directors out there who I love, Walter Hill, Brian De Palma, who the last couple of years have just been kind of not even cranking out, just kind of limping along, putting out right. junk. Yeah, but what were they supposed to do? You know, like be an asshole and go, I'm going to take my toys and go home. <laughs> Fair. I, I don't really, I don't buy that thing. You know, it's like, you know, a lot of those directors didn't have the, the luxury that somebody like Tarantino has. I know? think that's They didn't true. know that was going to be their last movie. You know, I think there's something heroic about these people going down fighting. 
And if Tarantino wants to fucking walk away and we never have to watch him, you know, change history again, fine, go home. <laughs> I think there's also, though, a lot of director, and I shouldn't say a lot, there are some directors that have that deadly cold streak and then come back big. Yeah. And, you know, in their late 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I think he's right and he's wrong, but at the same time, you know, you never know. I think De Palma's style and taste has aged out, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, not for me necessarily, but I think it just doesn't connect like when his peak was. You know what I mean? Because he kind of invented the sexy thriller of that era in a lot of ways, or a lot of aspects of it. And which is not in vogue right now, just in no the in, in there's no guys. sex in cinema. Yeah. And like, yeah, sometimes it's like an older guy trying to do it who doesn't have that fire in him just doesn't click the same way young pervert Brian De Palma does. <laughs> and I mean that in there the are... highest regard. Yeah. He's a pervert. There you are can cinephiles. Tell. Yeah. There are cinephiles in my life who, you know, have a, good, a, a vast taste in, in different kinds of films who don't get De Palma at all. And they're like, what is it with De Palma? They can't understand the appeal of De Palma. So he's not, yeah, he's not universally loved even by like, you know, movie people at all. And, and, and yeah, yeah, the people I know who don't like him, well, one of them is just about my age. Another one is, is younger than me, but, um, but I, I guess that's how I am about Jacques Demy. Like, I don't get it. (gasps) Um, for the most part. Oh, yeah. So it's just something that happens. Ooh, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> let's 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 examine Andrew Stevens' character at the very end of this movie, just for the sake of deciding whether there's some coherence to this movie or not. So it seems to me we have two choices to make. We can we've seen that his powers are vast and that he can levitate not only other people but himself. And then moments later, he falls to his death. So mm. the question is: Is the movie incoherent and they just didn't give a shit, or is Andrew Stevens' character? committing suicide just the way his father does a couple seconds later he scratches kirk douglas's face why i think so the kirk douglas will drop him and let him die ah. I, I think he's committing suicide oh that huh. makes a lot of sense yeah but I does like he that. scream when he goes down no you sure i don't think so maybe in anger like a I, <laughs> but yeah. not like a, i read it as i read it as a suicide over murdering your father or, you know, but I don't know if it was conveyed that well, maybe, or maybe that's just me. That's how I interpret it. Are you questioning the acting ability of Andrew Stevens? I mean, I would never. Um, but yeah, I uh, I don't know. The whole thing was, uh, that moment in particular was fine, but it, um, it wasn't as impactful as I maybe thought it would be. I think what follows it was more exciting, which, which is probably a better idea, honestly, to, you know, close the movie. It certainly didn't seem to have much of an impact on Cassavetes. He's like, no. all right, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Clear those bodies. Clean this up. <laughs> yeah. Clean, I think, doesn't he say that? Like, yeah, clean this shit up. And yeah. Like, yeah. 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 No. Well, you know, I think what's good, one thing that could be really said about this movie, it knows when it's over. Like, when it cuts to black. Yeah. It's like, yes, I wish more movies would do that. Because, like, you're not going to top that. Like, it's we don't Hitchcock need people. Trick. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's something that I that I always thought of one way. And today. I was <laughs> like, wait a minute. It's over. <laughs> I don't know what I'm, I don't know if I was right this whole time. I always thought of this movie as sort of the end, the very end being Amy Irving triumphant. Like, she has killed off the villain using all her psychic ability. But 
today I was like, well, yes, she does that, but what's her future? Is she mm. is she as out of control? Andrew Stevens has passed on everything to her. Right. And so is everything that made him a paranoid, delusional maniac now in her? Is she, like, what happens to her after the end of this movie? Right. Or can she control it more? Or does, because there's not that chemical you know, stew that they're feeding him in the mix. She's better off or, you know, she'll go and do the same thing to Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That Spielberg divorce money had to be pretty sweet. Jeez. She's lovely. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. I think we've, we've covered it. So what's left to do, if you'd like, we could play a round of what else was playing that week. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And let me tell you this. Let me start it off by saying, and 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 Adam, did you were you able to pull up a Chicago paper? I uh, yeah, I picked about uh, you know ten movies that were playing around town when the Fury opened. All right, now should should I I can start this off? Amazingly, so this movie got reviewed by Vincent Camby on Wednesday, March fifteenth, and then on March seventeenth, Friday, there was a two a two full page ad for the Fury. And one full page of this ad is the Pauline Kale review. And then the other full yeah. page ad is like a bunch of other pull quotes from other rave reviews. Shoot, let, let me read at least the first couple lines of Pauline Kale. Because it's kind of wild. She says, there's an ecstatic element in Brian De Palma's new thriller, The Fury. He seems to extend the effects he's playing with about as far as he can without losing control. This inferno comedy is pitched right on the edge. It may be to De Palma what the Wild Bunch was to Peckinpah. You feel he is—he ne- never has to make another horror movie. To go on would mean trying to kill people in ever more photogenically horrific ways, and he's already got two killings in The Fury, which goes so far beyond anything in his last film, Carrie, that that now seems like child's play. There's a potency about the murders here, as if De Palma were competing with himself, saying, you thought Carrie was frightening? Look at this. <clears throat> He's not a great storyteller. He's careless about giving the audience its bearings. But De Palma is one of the few directors in the sound era to make a horror film that is so visually compelling that a viewer seems to have entered a mythical night world. Inside of that world, transfixed, we can hear the faint, distant sound of De Palma cackling with pleasure. That's the first paragraph of that fucking word. Pretty good. Which then then goes on for another, I don't know, 1,500 words. Wow. I'm trying to find the part where she says he out Hitchcock's Hitchcock. Oh, here's something interesting that she says. De Palma is the reverse side of the coin from Spielberg. Close Encounters gives us the comedy of hope. The Fury is the comedy of cruelly dashed hope. With Spielberg, what happens is so much better than you dared hope that you have to laugh. With De Palma, it's so much worse than you feared that you have to laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. she talks about Scorsese. You ready for this? Uh-oh. Oh, go. boy. No other director shows such clear-cut development and technique from film to film. In camera terms, De Palma was learning fluid romantic steps in obsession. He started to move his own way and carry, swirling and figure skating sensuously. You could still see the calculation. Now he has stopped worrying about the steps. He's caught up with his instructors, with Wells and Touch of Evil, with Scorsese and Mean Streets. What distinguishes De Palma's visual style is smoothness combined with a jazzy willingness to appear crazy or campy. It could be that he's developing one of the great film styles, a style in which he stretches the suspense while grinning his notorious, sleep, his notorious alligator grin. 
He has such a grip on technique and the fury that you get the sense of a director who cares about little else. There's a frightening total purity in his fixation on the humor of horror. It makes the film seem very peaceful, even as one's knees are shaking. Wow. Yeah. She loved herself some De Palma. <laughs> Pretty oh, good. Man. Yeah, so, there. Yeah. So, um, if we're just just to do a quick recap, like we talked, Roger Ebert liked it, gave it three stars, and you know, said it was flawed, but you know, entertaining. Uh, Gene Siskel, the other Chicago critic, um, gave it one and a half stars, and just said it was one of those thrillers where you're waiting for the next big set piece. Which mm-hmm. he's not wrong; he just didn't like it, you know, yeah. as much. Uh, and then Dave Kerr, who is you know now at MoMA, but he was the film critic at the Chicago Reader at the time. And uh, he panned it. He didn't oh, have yeah? a rating system, but yeah, he really uh, did not care for it. So it's interesting where it seems like everybody agrees there's kind of this pulpy, stylish, crazy, uneven vibe. But it just depends on how much you accept or, or, or enjoyed it. So it's kind of interesting reading these reviews from back then. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, I won't even get into Vincent Canby, but he thought it was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, did you want to do the local listings now of like what was playing or? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll start. I'll, well, we'll, let's yeah. go. Let's 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 go back and forth. I'll start with one that was playing uh, in New York that week, a movie that I like. But every time I bring it up on this podcast with various people, everyone's like, eh, that's not a good one. Uh, Michael Ritchie's Semi Tough, Semi Tough, however you Ooh. say it. I'm a fan. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's not perfect. I mean, there's. I like the S stuff in there. It's really funny. Um, so if I'm doing this, though, it opened in Chicago March 24th, 1978, in wide oh, release. Because okay. there was cool. a special it, preview on the tent, right? Uh, yes, from what I could tell. Um, so what happened, though, was... So you know that scene where they're in that big glass elevator uh, in the movie? like in Kirk Water Douglas? Tower. Yeah, Water Tower. The movie played at Water Tower. There was a movie theater, yeah. uh, Water Tower, you know, in Water Tower Place. Yeah. Uh, so this movie actually screened where they shot it, which is actually awesome. pretty cool. So I wanted to make that connection. Can you imagine uh, Brian De Palma walking around Water Tower? Going, oh, man. Oh, man. I can't wait to play some cameras in this place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They should have had right. a screening in old Chicago. That would have been great in that monster mansion. <laughs> yeah, in the monster the mansion. House. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you mentioned Close Encounters, and that was playing around town and at the Woods Theater, and uh, that was, you know, in a pretty big hit run. So, yeah, that was playing contemporaneously with The Fury, so that makes sense. Scott, did you see Close Encounters in a theater when it was released? I don't think so. I don't think I did. But I used to go see movies in that Water Tower Theater all the time. Yeah. Yeah, the place was great. Yeah, very popular. Kind of a lot of times played the higher end or bigger studio movies and like classy stuff. It always seems like uh, when I've gone through the listings. Um, did right, you want to jump do... to one in New York? Yeah, do New York back on Friday, March seventeenth, and this is a movie, one of these art house hits that seemed to play for like three years straight in New York. That I was always too young to even think about seeing, and also I wasn't interested. But now I feel like, how have I never gotten around to seeing this movie? Donna Floor and her two husbands. What? Never you guys even one. know that movie? I am no. not aware of this one. No. no. That no. is a gap in my knowledge. With Sonia Braga. Ooh. 
A young Sonia Braga? I want to say, I could be completely wrong, I feel like it's one of these movies where her husband dies, she gets remarried, and then the ghost of her husband comes back, and the three of them have a lovely life together. Something like that. <laughs> you know, one of those movies. Oh, and right. it was remade as Kiss Me Goodbye, with Sally Field, James Caan, and Jeff Bridges. Uh, or, or you know what it is? I think it's more like, what's that other movie with like Alan Rickman, I think, where... Um, one, somebody dies and then but they right. spend the rest of the time convincing their spouse to move on that kind of a fucking thing it's, or that yeah. movie with Truly Sybil Madly Shepherd Deeply, is that what it's called Truly yeah Madly that's Deeply. it okay. or that movie with Sybil Shepherd and Robert Downey Jr. I think mm-hmm mm-hmm that sounds familiar I can't remember what the name of that is Okay, what do you got? Sounds Adam? like a like a blithe spirit thing or <laughs> right. Topper um, which I tried to watch Topper, Topper the other day yeah. I don't know man I guess I feel like it, was, it should be a little lower uh, than Topper. <laughs> um, uh, so we have to talk about the Chicago Theater, which has become kind of an icon in the city, next to you know the Sears Tower, the Bean. So on. I mean, it's like it. I, what other city identi- is identified by what used to be a movie theater, right? Like yeah. there's not too many. Uh, so that's always cool to talk about. But they had a big, juicy '70s classic playing there in its sixth week. Uh, it was Paul Schrader's uh, Blue Collar. Oh, huge nice hit. one. It was? Huge it was hit. a huge hit? Huge hit in the loop because the loop in this period, the, the owners were very shrewd and they marketed towards a predominantly African-American audience. Mm. And they would always... So it'd be like, for instance, when Alien was out, Yafet Koto was the star of Alien. Right. You know what I mean? And all the advertising and stuff. And So they were very shrewd in knowing who the audience was and encouraging them to come see the movies. Um, and yeah, uh, Richard Pryor printed money in the loop. Let's, All his movies were huh. big hits and, and I, would come back quite often. I'll say out of the two Richard Pryor dealing with the unions movies, this is the better one. <laughs> the other one being Which Way Is Up. Yeah, which is a remake of The Seduction of Mimi. And <laughs> man, does it whiff. Um, but uh, what do you got in New York after that? I got a movie here that I think I went to see because it was one of these movies that everybody went to see and it was rated PG and it really seemed to be really just feeding off a much bigger hit that had come out years before and Piranha. It would just cash in. <laughs> I'm gonna name two people in the cast of this movie and see if anyone knows what I'm talking about. Because I wouldn't if somebody was doing this to me. This movie had Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live and a guy named Jay Leno. American Hot Wax. Nice. Adam Carson, right off the fucking bat. American Hot Wax. Which I always thought of was like just like American Graffiti on Ice or whatever. But, yeah. you know, which it isn't. What it, it is. It's about it Alan is. Freed. Oh. This has been on my watch list for a while. I really want to get down to it. Um, Man, how that did, you know, come, oh, did you know it because it was also in Chicago at the time? It was yes, also it was. in Chicago, but I, I've seen clips of uh, both of them in it. Because uh, oh. I've been really trying to see it for a while. Um, so I actually saw Do That Turn next since you brought it up. Okay. So yeah, it was playing in Chicago, but it was on, listen to this double. It was, so it was the B feature and the A feature was a little Kung Fu classic that was just released called Master of the Flying Guillotine. Oh, Which is one, one of the best ever. Uh, the sequel to The One-Armed Boxer. Um, so you have one of the great Kung Fu movies paired with it, but I should also add one of the things I'm obsessed with is researching the Ballyhoo, which is you know, what my page is kind of about, Windy City Ballyhoo, they mm-hmm. were giving away 
flying guillotine frisbees <laughs> to the first oh. 1,000 people. So if you were there, I actually, so I posted this ad like a year or so ago, and I was like, is anybody in Chicago still have one of these Frisbees? Yeah, really? <laughs> I would kill for that thing. So yeah, what a weird combo. But yeah, American Hot Wax with a Kung Fu movie. Wow. Uh, I'm I'm up for that all day. We wow. should probably cover that in our podcast. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be down for that one. That's a good double. Um But what else was in New York? In New York was a movie that I remember seeing in a theater at the time, I don't know how or why, it was rated R. Again, I'm only 12, maybe 13. Well, no, wait, in March? Yeah, I was 12, March of 70. Can your mom verify this? <laughs> no, she won't. Okay. She will not. But I know I saw this in a theater. Um, Dustin Hoffman, Harry Dean Stanton, Gary Busey, and Teresa Russell in Straight Time. Nice. Oh, that's a good flick. I like that. Yeah. I like so, that So, um, So I'll just kind of do a little, I'll complete the triangle. By the way, was, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Screenplay written by Alvin Sargent, Edward Bunker, and my hero, uh, the man who collaborated with David Cronenberg on the brilliant Dead Zone screenplay, Jeffrey Boehm. Ah, I like Jeffrey Boehm. Yeah. It's a great movie. Um, Which leads me, though, so there was kind of a triangle of theaters near State and Lake. Um, I already mentioned the Chicago theater. Across the street from it was the State Lake. Theater, which is now where WGN Seven has their new studios. Mm. Um, they were playing uh, Saturday Night Fever in its 14th week. Was Massive it the hit across Was Chicago. it the R-rated or PG cut? Do we know? You know, I, I I don't know off the top of my head. That's a good question, but uh, I didn't know what's. Yeah, I don't know what the order of that is. Well, they this, this was the R cut. This was the R cut. The R cut came out first, and then they said, "Let's oh, make more money." Started R, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, so that was across the street from the Chicago and then diagonal from that, there was this little theater called the loop theater that was kind of living in the shadow of these two movie palaces. And that's what was playing straight time. So those were, if you know, Chicago, those three theaters were within like, you know, not even a quarter of a block of each other. And you can kind of skip around between those three. God, God, it was so great. Yeah. Let me ask you, does anybody know, can you get the PG cut of Saturday Night Fever in a home video format? Like, do they put it on as an extra feature? I don't think that they do. DVD or anything like that? They should. You're going to have to wait for the Criterion. That should be in the Criterion collection, that film. The Fast Times Ridgemont High Blu-ray they just put out has uh, the TV version. The TV which cut, is, yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um. So, okay, so uh, what's what else was in New York? That was kind of one I just wanted to... Put okay. those three together. I'm going to name some credits okay. for this movie, and I'll do it sort of in reverse order from, like, maybe least able to guess what it was based on this to easiest. You ready? And, Adam, yeah. you you stay out of it, because you've got the whole, you've got, we're probably playing <laughs> okay. most the same All right, movies. all right, all right. Fucker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> music by Bill Conti. Co-starring Cliff Gorman, who I always love. Michael Murphy, who I met. Came to the Wisconsin Film Festival five oh, okay. or six years ago. Murphy. I know this one. Uh, anybody else have an idea yet? Bill Conti, Cliff Gorman, Michael Murphy. Also starring Alan Bates and Jill Clayberg. Directed An unmarried Paul. woman? Thank you, yep. Scott. Oh, Lucas. good call. Also playing Chicago at the Esquire. It's interesting. A lot of the same ah, stuff. the Esquire. Here. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah, an unmarried woman's one of my favorites. That's like, uh, that's such a great like. That almost has like the arc of a Rocky movie, but it's all it's all about relationships and not boxing. Right? Thanks to that Bill Conti music. Yeah. yeah. 
but um, if we're, uh, you know, kind of staying in kind of the sleazy uh, loop era that we're kind of in in 78, sure, uh, the Oriental Theater uh, was playing Fury of the Dragon, a Bruce Lee knockoff uh, movie. Uh, and then right Bruce after Lai? that. Yeah, well, I couldn't. It looked like it was like one of those ones that where they re-edited the footage several times of like from other movies or like his funeral and stuff like that. Hmm. Like, I, yeah. you know, kind of like what material do we have? But I know right after this, like a few days later, um, so it might have been like a compilation. They were also playing Cato from the uh, it was it's called Cato uh, in the Green Hornet, which was three Green Hornet episodes mashed together. Wow. Uh, I have a poster for that on my wall, actually, because it's just uh, the coolest thing ever. Because, you know, who who grew up watching Green Hornet that didn't think, yeah, I'm in this for Kato? Uh, so it's great that they kind of gave the Kato his own movie. Yeah. It's amazing that that they were going that far, like repackaging oh, yeah. Green Hornet episodes. Like I said, come to fu- the movie yeah. and watch Green Hornet. <laughs> they were repackaging his funeral footage for some of these movies. You right. I right. mean, just like you have the biggest star in the world dead. What uh, do we got? You know, the best, it's so ghoulish, the, the best of the Bruce exploitation films is clones of Bruce Lee. Cause it's like the Avengers end game of Bruce exploitation movies because it brings Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai, dragon Lee brings them all together. And they are in the film playing clones of Bruce Lee that the sci- uh, scientists put together from his DNA. It's it's worth watching. Wow, somebody should show that movie, huh, Mike? <laughs> yeah, if anybody wants to go see Clones of Bruce Lee, uh, absolutely, I'd be the one to show it. It's it's worth it's 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 the wildest of all of them, I think. And again, yeah. ghoulish at the same time. Yeah. Yes, very ghoulish. All those movies are ghoulish. Well, the movie opens like with Bruce Lee being brought to the. I don't think it's it's obviously not actual footage, but. Opens with him being brought to the hospital where the scientists, the doctors, uh, extract his DNA to clone him. It's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else in New York? Because I got I just sure, a few. Oh, I okay. sure do. Okay. I sure do, man. And this so I got about one. three more. Okay. I'll do, I'll do two, three more, too, if you want. Here's a movie that the title is familiar. I feel like I never saw it. I don't know how I didn't see it. It's such a weird thing. It looks like they borrowed half the cast and crew from some of my favorite movies or movie of the 70s, The Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers um, from 74 and 75 or whenever they put out Four Musketeers. You know the story of that one. They sort of shot that as one movie. Yeah. And then broke That's why they the have the Salkin Claws. Right. So, but here's another Salkin production, and this came out in '78, and it's got Oliver Reed, it's got Raquel Welch, Mark Lester, it's got Count of Monte, uh, Monte Cristo. No, Rex Harrison is in it. Charlton Heston's in it. Sybil huh. Danning is in it. Oh wow, Ooh. it is the whole cast from the Three Musketeers. It's crazy, right? Now it's got one of the most interesting credits I've ever seen in a, in an ad for a movie. Screenplay by Berta Dominguez and Pierre Spengler, and then it says. Final screenplay by George MacDonald Frazier. So I don't know. Huh. I've never seen that before. Anyway, it's a PG-rated sword flick called Crossed Swords. That was also playing Chicago, but I didn't put it down. So uh, anyone that ever must seen have been a big release. 
No. It actually, uh, and George C. Did I say George C. Scott was in it? George C. Scott is in it. Directed by Richard Fleischer. Wow. That's a craftsman. So that yeah. might not be half bad, maybe. No, I know. I, I got to catch up to this. I got to find this somewhere. What do you got huh. in Chicago over there? Adam? So here's a, here's, you over know, there. Chicago over there uh, in there. Chicago. Um, so we, uh, this is the city was always a really big sneak preview test market, right? I mean, it's urban meets, you know, middle America. Sure. So here was a big one coming up that they were testing at McClurg court. Um, coming home was in the sneak preview Ooh. this week. So that would become like a big hit, you know, shortly after. I miss all these movie theaters so much. I used to yeah, go because McClurg court, hung around. Yeah. McClurg court's one of the ones I actually got to go to. Cause I would go, I went to see, definitely went to see the star Wars re-releases in 97 there. I thought yeah. it was, you know, cool, you know, 17 years old going downtown for a movie. And I think I saw, like, all the big uh, summer blockbusters. I would try and go see them throughout the 90s because it was one of the only THX theaters in yep. town. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, over in New York was a movie that seemed like the ultimate to me at the time. And for a long time, I just was like, this, how can anything ever be better than this? And Halloween. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, this also has a sort of a tie to Hitchcock, uh, maybe even a more overt tie to Hitchcock than Halloween. Um, well, definitely a more overt, uh, but a movie that I haven't seen in 25, 30 years, and I'm almost afraid to try now. And I'm wondering when the last time any of you seen this movie, uh, Mel Brooks, High Anxiety. Ah, uh, I like it. I don't, I think it's probably middle, uh, you know, but I can quote it. Like, I definitely, there's a few things that really stick in my mind in that one. But I think, is it the end of the line for Mel Brooks? Is there anything good after this? Spaceballs? Oh, stop. You're not serious. I mean, I don't like Spaceballs. I think History of the World's okay. Uh, I, I don't, you know. I like Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> I'll be, I'm like one of the three people that actually kind of half almost likes Dracula Dead and Loving It. But, I've never uh, seen that one because I think I totally tuned out because Spaceballs is fine, but pretty much everything after that. Ten I'll, years too late. Ten years too late, exactly. Spaceballs is not fine, but okay. Sure. <laughs> it was fine at the time. That's where it nostalgia hits with sure you. Like, wasn't. yeah. Why is Spaceballs fine? Because I watched it every fucking day on cable in 1988, you know? It's no, spa- it's no Space Pirates. Oh, Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates. Classic, classic no, bit of Lucas no exploitation. It's not what even. Is? What's that other movie that Mel Brooks produced? That's like a the kids on roller Star Star babies. Solar babies. Star babies. Not even solar babies. Star, solar babies. Solar babies. Yeah. 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 That's I funny. you're talking about the Elephant Man. Listen, I I love Martin Short's Clifford, and uh, so. I got no problem I, with I watched that disaster, but fucking Spaceballs sucks. <laughs> Nick Cage likes Clifford too. I was just reading about that oh, the other really? day. Clifford was a childhood favorite of mine. So uh Stefan yeah. the Dinosaur Man. Great yeah, stuff. No. Um so here's Charles a double f- What are you gonna go? How you gonna oh go well on? yeah. Yeah. No, he had like kind of like a that was like his uh Beethoven Renaissance, right? Where they're trying to put him in more kids' movies. Uh he looked excited to be there though. As yeah, Charles, no, as, Charles, yeah. as Charles Grodin usually does. Oh, it, you're it, right. That's his thing. <laughs> you know, he'd love that and Howard Stern. Um, oh, wait. Um, <laughs> you guys ever hear those clips of him just trashing Howard Stern? No, so but I'm going to track him down. That's going to that's uh, be pretty good. Well, even better even, than even Jack Carr doesn't think him. he's good. Yeah. Oh, what happened yeah. to you in Chicago? <laughs> um, 
So in uh, here's a fun one that was playing across all the drive-ins and uh, kind of neighborhood theaters. It's a double feature. Island of the Damned, which I'm not too familiar with, and another Rick Baker gory extravaganza, uh, The Incredible Melting Man. Nice. I guess that one's not gory as go- as much as gooey. That one's more... Yeah, uh, Incredible Melting Man's a weird flick, but I dig it. That's, uh, that's Incredible a, yeah, Melting cool Man was a movie that I saw ads for on TV and in newspapers and thought, oh God, this seems like even too much for me, and I never right. saw it, but it always seemed like this is the scariest movie ever. It's a... It's a pretty mild PG movie, yeah. honestly. Um, and it was it's PG. Inter- yeah. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. And what's interesting is like all the ads played it up. This is the next great cinematic <laughs> right. monster. Yes. Yes. You're never gonna see it. And it's like it's kind of a dopey movie with some good effects. Uh, Did but anybody it's got we know direct it, or is there anybody in it that we know? Oh, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Uh, it's a mystery science theater three thousand entry actually too. Oh. Um, so, uh, but I those think commercials were scary. Those commercials were terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Those talking robots. Well, uh, you know what another one of those is? The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is really yep. such a lame movie. Oh, see, I liked, I liked that one. And I really liked the sort of pseudo sequel, pseudo remake that they did uh, a couple uh-huh. years ago. Uh, I, I think that one's definitely worth checking out. I, it's from the same people that do American Horror Story, which is a show I don't necessarily enjoy, but I feel like. Yeah. The same team working on uh, an hour and a half movie versus an entire you know season, it just works a lot better. It's got a very distinctive style that's sort of seventies but sort of modern, and a uh, pretty good mystery in the way it works in being a sequel and sort of a remake of the original too. I, that's uh, I think that one's a gem. I've heard good All things. Right. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I got, I got one more from New York. Okay, and this makes me. This is. I mean, everything that we're talking about today, including the Fury. Makes me think, like, this is the age. Maybe everyone knows this already. Like, maybe as a 12-year-old, everything that you see, you're like, this is the fucking best. The, I always say about Friday you. the 13th movies and pizza, it's the same thing. Whatever Friday the 13th movie, whatever pizza you saw or ate when you were 11 is the best mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So these are all, hmm. these are, these were movies that I was like, I, there, you know, as long as I live, there's never going to be movies as good as this batch of movies. And this was definitely one of them. I probably saw this six fucking times in a movie theater. And again, haven't seen it in 25 years, and now I'm sort of like, I don't know if I want to see this again. Uh, Jean-Vierre Bujol, Michael Douglas, and a Michael Crichton jam. Coma. Coma. When's the last time anybody saw Coma? I've never dealt with with Coma yet. Coma's a pretty cool flick. Dude, because there was like that was like that streak that started after a Adra- and the Andromeda strain, right? Because then it was the the Terminal Man was in between these two, right? It wasn't like a Michael Crichton kind yes. of. But Andromeda strain and and which I've seen recently, I think is a masterpiece and okay, so unbelievably un shocking that the Andromeda strain is rated G. Watch the first twenty minutes <laughs> of Andromeda strain and think about it being rated G, and your mind will be fucking blown. Um. And Coma, I think, was at least good. Uh, Terminal Man is was the dud of those. Yeah, things. but no, yeah. don't forget Westworld was in there too. Westworld, Westworld yeah. Awesome. I guess what I'm saying is Crichton had a run there in the '70s. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, that maybe sometimes people sleep on were, but you know, they were pretty high profile movies, whether they were good or not. You know, yeah. hmm. but it's surprising to me to discover that he direct. I didn't realize that he directed. Any of these. I had no idea that he directed Coma. The Great Train Robbery, too. Yeah, and Which Coma's not good. even written by him. It was based on a Robin Cook book, I believe. Huh. That's mind-blowing. 
because it feels like it should be a Crichton story, but no, he just directed that one. Huh. Yeah. Well, he also goes back to ER. He co-wrote the screenplay. Oh, no, he wrote the screenplay and it was based on the book by Robin Cook. You're right. Who wrote the book that Dead Ringers is based on? Is that also Robin Cook? Hmm. I don't know. I know that's. I don't think so. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. Christopher Golden? Yeah. I don't know. No, it's uh, it, I get credit for somebody named Barry Woods oh, and Barry Jack Woods. That's what uh, yeah, Jack Geeson Geeseland. Hmm. Were the they wrote a book called Twins for Dead Ringers. Right. Did you ever read but, the book, Scott? Uh, no. They're gonna make a TV show out of it, apparently. What? Out of like Twins? They, <laughs> out of uh, Cronenberg's like uh, gonna supposed to be some part of the Dead Ringers series. <sighs> okay, I'm oh, in. Wait. All right, you got one more from Chicago. Yeah, just to round it out, another one at Water Tower where the Fury was filmed. <laughs> uh, the Goodbye Girl was playing. So, oh, you know, another kind movie. of There's big another, light hit of this yes. era. Twelve year old couldn't be better. Yeah. Richard <laughs> Dreyfuss was my hero. He did Jaws and the Goodbye Girl. He did nothing. He never had to do anything else again. Although no. I recently caught up with that thing where he's a porno director in the twenties or thirties. Inserts. Or? Inserts. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I got to watch that. Well, then he had the apprenticeship of Duddy, of Duddy Kravitz. Yeah. Uh, I that think made somewhat way. a noise in yeah. American Graffiti. Oh, yeah. Leading man. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Close Encounters. Close, a little thing Close Encounters, Close encounters. Yeah. yeah. He often says that uh, he, he has the best filmography of any American actor, if he does so say so himself, and he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. What I'm saying, Ben, is your hero is an asshole. <laughs> oh, I know that. Listen, I saw I saw Mr. Holland's opus. I know he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> you saw that? Yeah. Oh, I know I saw that. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's under, something under else. Under protest. Under protest. Of oh, yeah. I'm here under protest. Man, the Roll 60s them. were hard on all of us. That's what that movie taught me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> something about a hard on. Uh, well, I will say that there's an ad here for a movie I just watched on Criterion that I was, sh- I, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be good, but I was shocked at how terrible it was. And that's Michael Winner's version of The Big Sleep with Robert Mitchum. And that's disappointing. Andrew. Yeah, you want that to be good, right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's uh, the other movie that, like, if we're doing kind of like a Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe kind of like remakes, uh, what is the, what's the one he made? Farewell, uh, my lovely. Farewell, my lovely. I kind of like bad. that one. It's not bad. That's directed got a young by, Stallone in it. Directed by Dick Richards, one of the yeah. great names in all uh, <laughs> cinema. Um, uh, but that's not bad. That and that 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 is that you know that sticks to the <clears throat> proper milieu and and period. Big Sleep transports the story to modern day England for no reason. And yeah. it's not that Robert Mitchum is playing Marlowe with an English accent or anything. He just happens to be Philip Marlowe wandering around the English countryside. Like, would you think would be maybe this is some crazy Monty Python parody, like some interesting <laughs> hype, but but it's not even. It's so bad. Well, Michael James Winter Stewart has such a light it. touch, right? Yeah. So yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, this has been really a wonderful episode as far as I'm concerned what do you think about it i've been having a good time how long is it we've been well, on here now for two and a half hours 221 yeah okay you're gonna have to do some cutting because this is definitely longer <laughs> than the movie than the movie <laughs> yeah that's uh let's no deal. well well the, yeah the movie's two hours i think i can take 20 minutes out of this fucking thing okay. anyone noticing 
We have a rule yeah. that we never stick to. <laughs> well, it's sure. like that pizza guy. Every one bite, everybody knows the rules, and then he never takes the just one the bite. Halloweenies podcast. Notoriously, goes three hours on a ninety minute movie, a, a, <laughs> a ninety minute dumb movie usually. <laughs> yeah. No, hey, it just happens. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Rules remain to be broken. Well, well uh, I, I'm really happy you guys had us on, and that we yeah, got to talk great. about De Palma. This was really fun. It's about time for all kinds of things. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. It's been a wonderful episode. Talk to you. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Scott, do you want, in case this is your last episode for a while, do you want to leave the people with anything? No. No.